you are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lisa O'Brien, and I'm joined by my guest co-host today, Rob Chadwick, a retired journalist who has contributed a lot of information and insight into the case of State of Maryland versus Adnan Syed. Kyle is off this week, tending to family obligations. This is episode nine, Oklahoma versus Anthony Castillo Sanchez. Sanchez was linked to the December 20th, 1996 kidnapping, rape, and murder of OU graduate Julie Buskin via a cold case DNA hit in July of 2004. We're looking at the evidence against Sanchez, his trial, direct appeal, and state and federal post-conviction claims, including, including his recently rejected actual innocence claim, which alleged that his deceased father, Glenn Sanchez, confessed to killing Julie Buskin in statements he made between 2020 and his 2020-2022 suicide. And good afternoon, Rob. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Lisa. Thank you for having me. And uh, before we get started, I wanted to give you a chance to just introduce yourself to the listener, yourself to the listeners. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and um, your interests. Okay. I, uh, as you mentioned, I am a retired journalist. I've always had a, a strong interest in true crime, especially the Kennedy assassination and uh, the Leo Frank case and some other cases. Uh, it just so happens that about the time I retired, the uh, serial podcast was on the, had been released and I got very interested in the Adnan Syed case. So I spent a lot of time on Twitter talking about that and several other cases. And I've also written things, um, but here and there on the internet over time. So I'm now in the process of trying to reassimilate those, some of the better things I've written into a blog uh, at robchavik.blog. And that's that's where we are now. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, uh, dealing with the Syed case, or will you focus on multiple different cases? You know, um, I had originally... Uh, intended to focus on the Syed case, and I probably will still go back to that and and probably reassemble a lot of, that I've written into uh, uh, chapters of a book and so forth and so on. But I'm almost ready to move on from that, so I'm really interested in some of the cases that are coming up. I'm also interested in the Tommy Ziegler case in Florida, which I don't know if you know about that. It's another one like Syed Day. It's impossible for him to be innocent, but he tries everything in the world to to make people think he is. Uh, so there'll probably be a lot of things. All right. Interesting. I'll have to look that well to take a look at that one. Does that one make it its way through trial or has it? Oh, it happened in 1975. Oh, he, okay. Uh, 
he invited he took his wife to the to the furniture store and his parents were her parents were coming along to pick up a chair and he had one of his customers uh, scheduled to arrive at the same time so he he shot all of them and uh you know he's just been trying ever since appeal after he was on death row but okay he's like 78 now or something like that so i think i have looked at that case once before it's a little bit similar to Curtis Flowers in Mississippi. A furniture store for sure, yeah. But I I I vaguely remember that with the wife and her parents. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh so okay, well that's t- that's a show I might do soon. Uh that'd be great. <laughs> All right. So let's get started with uh Anthony Castillo Sanchez. Um of course we always start with the victim. Uh, this is a pre or early early days of the internet case, so we don't know. There's not a lot of information available about Julie uh, Jewel Jean Julie Buskin. She was born October 24th, 1975, in Benton, which is in Saline County, Arkansas. Her parents are Wilbur Bud Buskin and Mary Jean Buskin. Uh, she has a sister named Kathy. She may have other siblings whose names just haven't appeared in the media. Um, She had a bachelor's of fine arts from Oklahoma university in Norman, Oklahoma. She had completed her coursework, but apparently had not yet graduated. So she had earned her degree, but it hadn't actually been presented to her at the time of her uh, kidnapping, rape and murder. She was a student. She was also a dancer and she worked at the Oklahoma university golf course uh, while she was in school. Her father had owned a golf course in uh, Arkansas. And so she probably had worked for that for, for some time. Her plan was to go back to Arkansas and enroll in a master's program and ultimately, she wanted to teach dance, uh, especially ballet, to children, including special education. Okay. Uh, her injuries, cause of death, were a gunshot wound to the head. Our perpetrator in this case is Anthony Castillo Sanchez. He was born November 1st, 1978. His parents are Thomas Glenn Sanchez, who was born July, uh, June 5th, 1953, and died April 24th, 2022. Gloria Faulkner uh, was his birth mother, and then Kathy Hodge was a stepmother who was married to Glenn Sanchez and who, uh, who primarily raised uh, Anthony. He, had a, he has a sister named Sharon Fox. Uh, based on my reading of some of his writings and um, some of the claims that are being made by him, I my non-expert opinion is that he is a sociopath. Yeah, I think that's a really good opinion because if you look at his record, which I'm sure you're going to, to present, he was into all kinds of criminal activities. So, I mean, he obviously is a sociopath. He may, he may tend toward that side of psychopathy rather than a pure psychopath, but he's definitely a sociopath. Right. 
And um, now something I, I have is that there is an allegation that he was involved in theft and breaking into cars. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, after Julie Buskin's murder, he started getting caught. In June of 1997, he was charged with grand larceny. On September 18th, 1997, he has a failure to appear. In that case, on the 1st of September, 1998, he has receiving stolen property, two counts, possession of marijuana, which was a misdemeanor, two counts, possession of paraphernalia, also a misdemeanor, two counts, and transporting a loaded firearm, another misdemeanor, two counts. On May 3rd, 1999, he had a, a throwing on object at a vehicle and feloniously pointing a weapon charges. On September 16th, 2001, he was charged with rape in the first degree and burglary in the second degree and also escaped from a penitentiary. Uh, and of course, in this particular case, his victim is Julie, uh, Jewel Jean, Julie Buskin, who was 21, but his former girlfriend, who was the victim of the 2001 rape and burglary, is also a victim. Right. Um, and not to diminish her. And as it was her, the crime he committed against her, which ultimately led to him being caught for Julie's That's murder. Um, so, uh, and it's so ironic that the advocates for Sanchez claim Glenn had this vast criminal record and they ignore the fact that so did Anthony. But Glenn didn't have a record, did he? Not that I can find in Oklahoma and not that I can find in Texas. Um, I, I checked Harris County's records and I checked the Court of Criminal Appeals records and I don't find anything for Thomas Glenn Sanchez no. having any sort of criminal record. I think Glenn was originally from Texas, but he had been living in Oklahoma for, for decades. Right. I think there are two Glenn Sanchez's and I think people are getting them confused. It's Correct. like on the Adonai case, when you talk about Jay Wiles, his father is also in the database and people get them confused all the time. Correct. And I believe that that is what's happening. And I will go a step further. And I believe that it is deliberate that they are pretending or 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 they're leading people to believe that the Thomas G. Sanchez, born December 1963, is Sanchez's father. Mm -hmm. And I think it's deliberate, deliberately misleading. Right. Uh, so the crime occurred on December 20th, 1996. Julie Buskin was a 21-year-old student at the University of Oklahoma College of Fine Arts at Norman. She'd finished all of her classes and had earned her bachelor's degree in fine arts. Her plan was to return home to Benton, Arkansas, and enroll in graduate school at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Julie was an accomplished ballerina who danced in productions in Oklahoma and Arkansas. Her goal was to earn her master's, open her own dance studio, and teach ballet. Julie was due to move back to Arkansas, and her parents were due to arrive in a U-Haul truck on December 20th, 1996. On December 19th, Julie spent time with her friend Ryan James, then joined other friends to play Monopoly and exchange Christmas gifts. 
She'd promised to take a friend, Megan, to the airport for an early morning flight. So the girls decided to pull an all-nighter. At about 2 a.m., they went to a diner for a late-night snack, leaving there at around 3 a.m. to buy gas and a cappuccino. They headed to the airport in Julie's Red Eagle Summit, where Julie dropped Megan off for her flight by 4.30 a.m. Sanchez lived in a house on Drake Drive, about a mile from the Dublin West Apartments where Julie lived. Some media sources have reported that Sanchez was in the apartment complex parking lot during those early morning hours to break into cars to steal whatever valuables or money he could find. At around 5.30 a.m., at least three tenants in the Dublin West Apartments heard a woman's scream of terror. An off-duty police officer went outside but didn't see anything. A second tenant looked out the window but didn't see anything either. Another tenant heard a man's voice telling the woman to just shut up and get in the car. The tenant also heard a car door open and close, followed by footsteps and a second car door opening and closing. She then heard the car start and drive away. A caller to 911 reported a woman screaming and an officer was dispatched. He arrived on scene at 5.51 a.m. but didn't find anything. There were numerous sightings of Julie and her abductor reported by other witnesses who helped narrow the time frame of Julie's kidnapping and murder. A woman saw a small red car uh, headed toward Lake Stanley Draper between 6.45 a.m. and 7 a.m. on 12-20-1996. A man the witness estimated to be 25 to 30 was driving the car with a woman in the front passenger seat. The woman described the driver as angry and the woman as fearful. A witness on his way home to Norman from a night shift at Tinker Air Force Base encountered a red compact car with an Arkansas license plate driven by a man heading away from Lake Stanley Draper. The driver of the red car nearly caused a collision and seemed oblivious to the presence of the other vehicle, cutting it off. The witness engaged in brief pursuit, then went on his own way when the two vehicles reached Norman. Ryan James had lunch plans with Julie that day and arrived at her apartment at 11 a.m. When he saw that her car was gone, he returned to the OU golf course. He contacted his grandparents to see if Julie had stopped by their house or contacted them. Ryan and his grandfather searched for Julie, even driving to the airport to retrace her route. In the early evening, they contacted OU Police Chief Lester to report Julie missing. A man walking at the lake around noon saw something odd lying at the shoreline, but didn't investigate until later that night after dark. When he realized the odd sight was a woman's body, he called police, who descended on the scene. Julie's body was found lying on the shoreline of Lake Stanley Draper. She was clothed with her jeans unbuttoned and unzipped and her underwear rolled down to her thighs. Her hands were bound behind her back with black laces, and she was lying face down with her head and shoulders in the freezing water. Her opal and diamond ring was missing from her finger and never found. She died from a contact gunshot wound to the back of the head. In addition to swabs taken during Julie's autopsy, police recovered a discarded pink leotard with the initials JB on them at Lake Stanley Draper crime scene. They also recovered footprints leading away from the site of Julie's body. They were able to determine that the shoe prints were consistent with a size 9 Nike Air Max tennis shoe. Julie's car was found parked near the Dublin West Apartments later that evening. Inside, police recovered a pair of pajama bottoms with semen stains on them. Julie's cell phone, a radar detector, 
and CD player were missing from the vehicle and never recovered. In the driver's side of the vehicle, police found red dirt consistent with the dirt at Lake Stanley Draper. Analysts were able to identify human spermatozoa on the leotard, panties, pajama bottoms, and Julie's anal swabs. A partial DNA profile was developed from the pajama bottoms, and a full profile was developed from the leotard and panties. Julie's cell phone records showed a call placed to Sanchez's former girlfriend on December 21st, 1996, hours after Julie died. And that may have been December 20th. My apologies. There were two additional calls to wrong numbers, similar to ones associated with friends of Sanchez. It would take years to find Julie's killer. Police dropped the ball when they failed to immediately interview the woman who reported the sighting of an angry man and a frightened woman in a red car near Lake Stanley Draper. It would be two years before they finally interviewed her. The second witness also reported his sighting when he learned of Julie's murder, but police failed to immediately interview him. And we'll talk about how that probably affected those two witnesses' identification. Right. I, I guess there was someone who, I know when I watched the forensic files episode, the uh, police sketch looked like somebody, you know, around Sanchez's age at that time. I know the police um, didn't have a suspect, another suspect that kind of resembled that picture, mm-hmm. but he was ultimately cleared. Um, and right. then, then I ran across this picture of this old man who looked like he probably came out of I don't know, an alley somewhere. So I was really confused about those two police photos as to how they came to be. Well, what Sanchez's advocates are doing is they're ignoring the existence of that initial sketch, which I'm not really sure the provenance of it either because it's not mentioned. But the second sketch, the one that they're showing, was made by that woman two years or three years after Julie's murder when she was finally interviewed with police and it's mentioned in a post-conviction pleading uh, later on or a recent post-conviction pleading that the woman admitted she's not good at telling age. Right, right. Was she Um, even going to the police in the beginning? She did contact police and they didn't immediately interview her. Hmm. Uh, And that's why I say they did drop the ball on that. Oh, yes. Um, Had they interviewed her, her recollection and her information might have been closer to, you know, younger, a younger man, because again, Hmm. her saying 25 to 30 is what she said when she was interviewed. Not, what she perceived in 1996. Exactly. That drawing looks like someone more in the range of 60 to 70 years old at best. Correct. And um, so, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. So Anthony Sanchez, after he raped uh, and murdered Julie Buskin on December 20th, 1996, he began his, uh, I, I believe he began getting caught. I believe that he was engaged in criminal activity. He just was lucky enough not to be caught. Um, and he had the grand larceny charge, the failure to appear, 
Uh, his bond was forfeited and his bench warrant was issued. He had receipt of stolen property and the drug charges, loaded firearm charge. Um, he ended up entering a guilty plea on those charges and he got a deferred sentence. Uh, he pled guilty on receipt of stolen property, one count of possession of marijuana, one count of possession of paraphernalia, and um, the transporting a loading loaded firearm count. Um, he then had another failure to appear in October of 99. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, here we see he knows how to he knows how the system works, because on the tw uh, 414 2000, he sought to replace his attorneys. He was facing a violation or, you know, revocation. And so he's trying to get new attorneys. Um, and uh, I think he was holding the violation in abeyance saying, I'm going to get an attorney. I'm going to get an attorney. And the 14th of April was when the judge said, if you don't appear with counsel at your next appearance, you're going to lose your bond. Uh, there was a hearing held on April 19th, 2000. And uh, basically, Sanchez was found to have violated rules of his probation, and he was ordered to obtain an NA sponsor and attend NA and AA meetings and bring a negative. Uh, so I, I think there was a drug violation mm -hmm. on his probation. Right. On May 4, 2000, he pled guilty to throwing an object at a motor vehicle and feloniously pointing a weapon. He was sentenced to five years suspended and uh, supervision, a $250 fine on each count and court costs in order to pay restitution. Um, and then he had another, okay, no, sorry. Um, on March 20th, 2000, the state of Oklahoma elected to have a John Doe indictment for the rape and kidnapping and forcible sodomy charges uh, against the person who murdered Julie Buskin. And that was done based on the DNA profile. So even in 2000, they had enough of a DNA profile to be able to say we can get a conclusive match do you think they actually, i'm sorry do you think they actually got that john doe indictment because of course not the murder that's there's no statute of limitations there but on some of the other charges were correct the yeah yeah correct uh in order to uh to be able to charge or to try him for rape forcible sodomy and kidnapping there are likely uh some statute of limitations and it had been four years since the murder and they hadn't identified the perpetrator with that DNA. So they were ensuring that they were getting an indictment before any statute ran on any of the potential charges. And that was not that's not part of some conspiracy against Anthony Sanchez. It's simply making sure that they could charge first degree murder and try him for first degree murder with these underlying charges 
because if the if the statute runs on those charges, then they're left with murder and they can't argue first degree. Yeah, it happens in a lot of cases. There's certainly nothing about this case in particular. I mean, you have that going on all the time. Mm -hmm. Correct. And it's not, like I said, it's not a sign of some conspiracy. And then on September 16, 2001 is when Sanchez uh, basically broke into his ex-girlfriend's apartment. When she arrived home, he was sitting in the dark waiting for her. He raped her. Thankfully, he didn't kill her. And so she reported this to uh, the authorities and he was arrested. He apparently in that time managed to walk away or perhaps he was in a work facility on another charge that the the facts aren't entirely clear on the escape from penitentiary, whether it was a work release type program on another charge that he walked away from and didn't go back uh, perhaps because he had committed this rape and burglary and so he elected not to go back like he was supposed to um, and then also on the 19th the former girlfriend Carly filed a protective order against Anthony Sanchez which was issued on September 28, 2001. Um, Sanchez was appointed counsel in the uh, rape and burglary case on October 15, 2001. He applied for indigent defense on January 11, 2002 uh, in both the 99 case and the 2001 case. I think the 99 was... Um, the escape. Anyway, um, I put the docket numbers and then I forgot what the docket numbers were for. Um, he did obtain the uh, assistance of Oklahoma Indigent Defense. Uh, Attorney Stephen L. Stice appeared in each of those cases in April and May of 2002. Uh, the Okay, the 1999 case was a, uh, they were seeking to revoke the suspended sentence or revoke his parole on his sentence. And so that was, um, a uh, he wasn't paying restitution. He was ordered to pay. Uh, they, the state sought to revoke his uh, suspended sentence and he got a new restitution schedule worked out. On... September 10th, 2002, he reached a plea deal in the uh, rape and burglary cases. The rape charge was dismissed and he pled guilty to the burglary in the second degree. Um, he was sentenced to 10 years, eight of which were suspended and a $500 fine, one year probation. And this is the case that required him to give DNA, which was entered into CODIS. Um, so he began his two years. He was sentenced to two years in the Department of Corrections. And that was to be served concurrent with uh, his 1998-1999 cases. Um, and so he also pled guilty to the escape from penitentiary 
and he received six years to the Department of Corrections with credit for time served. And that was to run concurrent to his Cleveland County sentence um, in the 1998 case. And in July of 2004, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation criminalist Ken Nealon notified a cold case detective in the Oklahoma Police Department that Anthony Sanchez's DNA profile had generated a hit on the unknown DNA profile associated with the Julie Buskin murder. Police obtained a search warrant and a new sample of Sanchez's DNA for further comparisons. His DNA matched the DNA profile generated from the sperm cell fraction isolated on Julie Buskin's panties and also matched the sperm cell fraction isolated on the stained pink leotard discarded at the crime scene. The matches corresponded to Sanchez's known DNA at all 16 genetic loci tested. The state's DNA expert characterized the probability of a random DNA match on the Buskin evidence with an unrelated individual other than appellant as one in 200.7 trillion Caucasians one in 20.45 quadrillion African-Americans and one in 94.07 trillion Southwest Hispanics. Appellant also could not be excluded as a DNA of a don- uh, the donor of a DNA mixture isolated from epithelial cell fractions on the panties and leotard. DNA comparisons on the spermatozoa recovered from the anal swab and pajama bottoms from the car were inconclusive. Um, so they're misrepresenting the DNA. Yeah. yeah. Right out of the gate. <laughs> sure. um, it was not, the mixed profile is the epithelial. And that is probably a mixed profile of Anthony Sanchez and Julie Buskin. So it's a touch DNA, right? It It's probably, it could be touch DNA. Um, Epithelial is usually touch DNA, but it could be epithelial, could also be a term, I'm not a DNA expert, that's used for low quantity, mm-hmm. um, where it's low quantity and it's some form of DNA, but they're not entirely, they can't categorize it as sweat, body fluid skin cells, whatever. So, but it's epithelial and it's probably, you know, a mixed profile, but there's no mixture in the sperm cell. Mm -hmm. Zero mixture in the sperm cell. And as they've pointed out, the vaginal and uh, oral swabs were negative. Um, Again, the anal was they did identify spermatozoa, but they were unable to get a full profile. I believe okay. they were partial profiles. Same with pajama bottoms. And the pajama bottoms appeared to have been used to clean up someone. So, um, and that may be why it's low number and low quantity and they're unable to get a full profile. Mm-hmm. But if it's mishandled, if it's not properly collected, the odds are you're going to get 
mixture and or you're going to get partial profile. You're not going to get a full 16 loci profile. And I'm going to say right now, David Ballard, if you read his his report that I sent you yesterday. Yes. He's basically saying Anthony Sanchez and Julie Buskin must be related because they have the same uh, DNA at some loci, the yeah, same numbers was, at some loci, which is not how DNA it, works. I don't know. I, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, she wasn't related to them. No, she was not. Um, <laughs> they yeah, And they may have. They may have a loci where they're both 15, 16. Um, but, of course, I kind of take all of his. I've taken. I took his entire report, which as a journalist, you probably agree, was one of the worst written reports I've ever read in my entire life. It was yeah. rambling. There was no structure. It was like he was just trying to get bullet points mm -hmm. into it narrative felt form. Like he was, it felt to me like he was trying to just beef up the report to get a number of pages in. You know, yeah. So it would be, uh, you know, uh, um, a hefty report rather than an accurate one. Yeah, and it was only like four pages. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, but, you know, and he 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 talks about what he found and what he reviewed, but he doesn't attach any of the things he reviewed. And they don't make any of those things public. Um, which is troubling for me. Because that tells me you're hiding something. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, but yeah, he says they, they must be related because they have alleles that have the same numbers. And that's not how DNA works. No. You know, you have to match so. the, there has to be a certain number of alleles that match. Is, Correct. Is it, what's the total? 16? 16 loci. Yeah, so I think at least nine or ten of them have to match or something. I, I can't remember, but it, it's a high number. It's much higher Correct. than thirty percent. Um. So yeah, and and this and th that's another thing. Thirty percent seems like a random mm -hmm. number, uh, because he doesn't identify which loci, and he doesn't identify how their numbers are the same. What numbers? what Anthony Sanchez had and what Julie Buskin had, you know? Right. Right. So, um, and all that really does is when a victim and a perpetrator share the numbers that identical at one loci, that just means you can't exclude the victim. But if there aren't consistently multiple loci, then you can probably exclude the victim if that's the only loci you have. Right. So, um, but he, and he's no, he's no DNA expert. He's just, he's trying to create doubt or manufacture doubt where none exists as to the DNA. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So then there was an application for order returning prisoner because the state was seeking to arrest Anthony Sanchez for this murder. Um, then an amended information and pre uh, preliminary bill of particulars were filed on September 21st, 2004. 
changing the name of the defendant in uh, the CF-2000-325 indictment uh, case from John Doe to Anthony Sanchez. Sanchez made his first appearance on September 21st, 2004. A preliminary hearing was set for September 28th, 2004, and he was ordered to have no bond. Of course, he was in DOC at the time. An application for indigent defense was filed on September 21st. Uh, on October 4th, 2004, the court entered an order for testing of DNA material in possession of the state and Oklahoma City PD. Uh, and this is another thing I want to go um, to state right at the outset. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation tested and handled the DNA, not the Oklahoma City Police Department. Because Anthony Sanchez's advocates keep throwing out Joyce Gilchrist's name. And she had nothing to do. I mean, they've never produced a single report, any evidence that she had anything to do with Anthony Sanchez, any of the evidence in Anthony Sanchez's case. Mm -hmm. So she um, was another another uh, agency. She wasn't with the agency that tested. Correct. This. She was she was with the Oklahoma City Police Department and evidence was. I think initially sent to the Oklahoma City Police Department. Uh, they're probably at when it comes to o Oklahoma University and Norman, they're probably the larger police department with the crime lab. Um, and she was she has a uh, she has a horrible reputation. She was one to match where there was no match or declare a match where there wasn't really a match. Um, she was one to overstate her findings to implicate or inculpate suspects. Um, and she retired in disgrace. Uh, but there's no evidence that she had anything to do with this case. Plus, and, it's been retested, hasn't it, since then, with the results that implicate the, the defendant here? As far as I could tell, yes. And, and the results that implicated Anthony Sanchez were not obtained by Oklahoma City Police. Hell, if if Joyce Kilchrist had handled it, that first suspect that we heard about on the Forensic Files episode, which I don't mm -hmm. find any any detail about him in any of the case law in the any of the cases that came out of Anthony Sanchez's conviction. So I don't know. I don't know what was established about him in court and what's just media, but has, if there was another suspect, he would not have been eliminated by that DNA. He would have been implicated by that DNA because Joyce Gilchrist had, she had a hand in it would have probably found a way to implicate him in that DNA. Right. And if you remember on the forensics files episode, the um, I don't remember the name of the person who who said this, but one of the investigators said that his DNA was it was kind of funny to me because he said his DNA was close, but not close enough. So if she had found someone who was close um, and she wanted to uh, railroad someone, I'm sure she would have taken that opportunity. Correct. And Anthony Sanchez might never have been implicated. 
Um, but again, you know, the DNA testing that yielded the unknown DNA profile in 1996 or 1997 was done by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Joyce Gilchrist had no ties with them, had nothing to do with them, and never had anything to do with the DNA in Anthony Sanchez's case. So Joyce Gilchrist, as to Anthony Sanchez, is a big, fat red herring. Mm -hmm. Almost as big a red herring as John Mark Byers in the West <laughs> yes. Memphis Three case. True. <laughs> so... Um, anyway, so the court did order independent DNA testing and the logical inference from that fact is that that DNA testing did not exculpate Anthony Sanchez because that's the last we hear about it. Mm -hmm. Um, on the 7th of October, 2004, Sanchez was allowed access to evidence to conduct DNA testing, which was to be paid for by the court fund. Uh, there was an agreed order to keep Anthony Sanchez at the Cleveland County Jail entered on October 13, 2004. On October 28, 2004, uh, one of his defense attorneys, Joel Henderson, filed a motion to withdraw and he was granted uh, to withdraw on November 8, 2004. At some point, uh, this is when Silas Lyman, and we've heard his name from Richard Glossop, uh, he was appointed to represent Anthony Sanchez. Uh, he is much maligned in this case, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, Matthew Hare made an appearance on behalf of the Oklahoma Attorney General's Office. So they were apparently brought in to help, I think, the Cleveland County district attorney to try the case um, and that's another thing that's being misrepresented anthony sanchez's conviction in this case is not from oklahoma county anthony sanchez's conviction was in cleveland county the crime occurred at lake stanley draper in cleveland county not oklahoma county um because that's where Julie was murdered. Her kidnapping, I believe, would have been in Oklahoma County because I think Norman's in Oklahoma County. Uh, but like Stanley Draper is in Cleveland County. And that's where the charges are are from. Right. So another red herring saying it's Oklahoma County and can't trust their system. Um, it's just that's, again, deliberately misleading the public to believe uh, that something cast doubt when that's not even accurate on uh november 16 2004 there was a request to continue the preliminary hearing that was granted on the 30th of november and the preliminary hearing was reset to february 23 2005 um there was a notice of compliance with court order regarding DNA testing and request for DNA testing filed on January 18th, 2005. On January 19th, 2005, there was a hearing and order granting in part and denying in part Sanchez's motion to prohibit 
extrajudicial statements by the state and requests for a gag order. So Silas Lyman was not doing a bad job because right off the bat, he is preventing the state from making statements in the media about their case, the strength of their case and the evidence implicating Sanchez. Uh, there was a status conference on April 4th, 2005. The case, I think it was set to go to trial in September. That was stricken. The jury trial was set for uh, for January 30th, 2006. Jurors were to be summoned for January 13th, beginning at 9 a.m. The final pretrial conference and motion hearing was set for January 19th, 2006 at 9 a.m. And discovery was due on November 1st, 2005. Um, a motion to revoke was filed in one of Sanchez's other cases. Uh, a status conference was held because of some discovery problems in the murder case. Um, Sanchez was, in the meantime, in July of 2005, sentenced to three years at the Department of Corrections on each count in his 1999-813 case which was to be served consecutive to other sentences. On August 1st, 2005, Sanchez's defense filed the following motions to strike the continuing threat aggravator for more definite bill of particulars, to strike especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravator for voir dire regarding mitigating circumstances, to quash the bill of particulars, to limit introduction of crime scene photographs and physical evidence for a jury questionnaire to endorse all jailhouse informers for discovery to declare the Oklahoma death penalty statutes unconstitutional for individual voir dire of jurors regarding the death penalty to prohibit the prosecution from exclu excluding jurors who express reservations regarding the death penalty for voir dire on the death penalty to compel the release of DNA evidence to defendant for independent examination and evaluation and request for hearing if necessary. Uh, an order was signed, an agreed order on September 9th, which compelled the release for independent ex expert examination and evaluation of the DNA evidence. Uh, again, we hear nothing about that. So the logical presumption is that it did not exculpate Sanchez in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. uh, an order was entered on September 12th uh, compelling the release of the DNA evidence and basically reducing the rulings made on the bet from the bench into the record uh, into written form in an order and also ordering a transcript of the hearing and setting general pretrial motions for October 14, 2005. On September 29, 2005, another attorney joined the defense team by the name of Diane Box. She was also with OIDS. Uh, there was an, an additional agreed order for testing of DNA evidence. And these are listed on the docket, but I don't have the physical orders to look at to know exactly what they were about. Um, the state filed a finalized bill of particulars on November 1, 2005. Uh, Sanchez filed an objection to the trial location. Uh, he also filed a motion to compel disclosure of information regarding the court's consideration of trial location and request for hearing. 
and uh, the state filed an objection to remote trial location. Apparently, the main Cleveland County facility was not going to be available for trial. And so the court had set an alternate location and nobody liked that. Um, and then on December 13, 2005, Judge Lucas, who had been presiding over the case, uh, recused himself. Why did he do that? I don't know. And but given the the statements being made by Sanchez's family and Sanchez, um, I would guess perhaps there was some allegations made by them against him and he felt it was going to affect his impartiality. Um, I don't know. I, it could have been a witness that he wasn't aware of. He suddenly became aware of and there was a conflict. Um, again, these are, are these predate the electronic availability of records on the Oklahoma court website. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know, but the case was set to the chief judge for reassignment and a status conference was set for December 14, 2005. Sanchez's attorneys filed a motion to suppress DNA evidence and all evidence derived therefrom and a request for an evidentiary hearing on December 16, 2005. Um, there was an order entered on the same date, December 16th, allowing scientific evidence to be collected. Again, not sure what that's about. But, I mean, this shows that his attorneys were working with, you know, what they had. Of course. And doing what they could to try and minimize um, the case against him. And, you know, when you've got a 16 loci match in the trillions, statistically, um, there's you don't have a lot to work with. Um, there was a ruling on December 21st, 2005, ordering that Sanchez advise the court daily as the DNA evidence's independent testing status. Um, the court would advise counsel as to construction conflicts, if any, regarding the 2000, the January 2006 trial setting. Uh, remain the gag order remaining in effect per the um, ruling on the hearing at in January 2005, and the case was reassigned to Judge Bill Hetherington for the proceedings. The final pretrial motions were set on December 21st for January 18th at 1.30 p.m., and Sanchez's motion to suppress was set for January 4th, 2006 at 9.30 a.m. There was a notice of intent to offer evidence of a DNA profile filed by the state. Um, the state also responded to Sanchez's motion to suppress DNA evidence on January 4th, 2006. A scheduling order was entered on January 5th, setting the motion to reset for re suppress for January 18th and ordering that Sanchez remain in Cleveland County uh, custody until conclusion of trial. There's a memo in the file from an investigator named Donna Nelson regarding her interviews, and it has some interesting comments about Glenn Sanchez, which is why I 
basically reproduced it here. Um, the investigator noted that Sanchez's mother, Gloria Faulkner, was interviewed twice and was cooperative in her interviews and willing to talk to the investigator. She was unable to provide the kind of testimony we needed to help this client at trial. Asked to be released from her subpoena and was told it was too early for Silas Lyman to make a decision like that. Faulkner threatened to go to the DA and testify for their side. Father Glenn Sanchez was interviewed once at the beginning of investigation. He has since refused to talk to anyone on the defense team. Investigator only has a pager number because Glenn travels and has no permanent address. He changed his pager number a couple of months before trial and did not advise the defense. Investigator learned this from another witness who is afraid Glenn would be angry with her. He has never returned the investigator's page since his number changed. The lawyers have made attempt to schedule an interview with Glenn when he attended court hearings. He would never provide a time and would say he'd get back to them. Have been told Glenn will not meet with them. He is paranoid and does not trust lawyers, cops, or white people. Glenn refuses to cooperate even though they feel he would be one of the best witnesses for Sanchez during second stage. The investigator said she would continue to try to interview Glenn but believe he will continue to refuse to meet with them. Um, remember this later when we talk about Glenn Chance Sanchez's allegations. Mm -hmm. um, there was a notice of demand for chain of custody witnesses filed by Sanchez on January 17, 2006. Um, there was a motion in limine filed on the same date by Sanchez regarding evidence used to support the continuing threat aggravator. There was a motion to compel specific discovery regarding statements of Sanchez. Um, a scheduling order was issued on January 20th, continuing uh, pre-admission hearing set for to January 26th, beginning at 8 a.m. And then there was a motion in limine filed by Sanchez regarding the state's exhibits, exhibits and testimony related there, too. Uh, venue, again, for the trial was in Cleveland County, Oklahoma. Initially, Judge Honor, uh, the Honorable Tom A. Lucas was presiding. He was replaced when he recused in December of 2005 with Judge William C. Hetherington, Jr. Counsel for the state was Matthew Hare, uh, the Oklahoma attorney from the Oklahoma Attorney General's office, and Robert Richard Sitzman, the assistant DA for Norman. Uh, counsel for the accused was. Uh, for trial was Silas Lyman, Diane Box, and Joe Robertson, who actually came in for direct appeal. My apologies. Uh, on the January 27, 2006, a motion to suppress DNA profile evidence was sustained. Um, that didn't eliminate, that wasn't, I don't think that was Sanchez's motion to suppress the DNA evidence altogether, it was to suppress the profile evidence mm. um, that the state wanted to to use. Um, but again, I don't have access, so it's kind of confusing as to what... I mean, the DNA evidence obviously came in because it's sure. the main evidence, but I think they were surprised. He wanted the 
the DNA profile used in the indictment to be suppressed. Okay. Um, so, uh, and I wish I had the, you know, the motions to be able to see what it dealt with and, and what that would have actually meant. Um, the guilt innocence phase of the trial began on January 30th, 2006 and concluded on February 16th, 2006. Um, Sanchez filed additional motions in limine on February 6, 2006, seeking to suppress DNA evidence and argument, cellular telephone records and uh, tower locations, and evidence of other crimes or bad acts. That obviously was not granted because all of those aspects were, uh, all that evidence was used at the trial. The verdict was uh, rendered by the jury guilty on counts one through four on February 16th, 2006. The penalty phase began on and ended on uh, February 16th, 2006. And Sanchez was sentenced to death. That formal sentencing was done on June 6, 2006. Um, and there was a letter from Sanchez received by the court on February 21st, which isn't part of the record. Um, a minute entry was entered on February 23rd, which basically uh, detailed the verdicts of guilty on count one, guilty on count two, and his sentence was 40 years and $10,000 fine, guilty on count three, 20 years and 10,000 fine. He was guilty on count four, and there was no separate sentencing. And the second stage verdict was death, and the jury was discharged. The court entered a summary order. Uh, basically, they were the court said it was in receipt of the defendant's pro se submission delivered to the courthouse by a third party. The clerk was instructed to file same. The court will not accept any further submissions without it being submitted through counsel. Regarding the February 18, 2006 request, defendant is not entitled to a copy of the transcript separate and apart from the appeal process. Defendant's request for police and witness statements is denied and his request for journal and notes must be directed to whoever is in possession of them. Um, and copies of these were provided to the uh, DA attorney general and uh, Sanchez's counsel. And of course his family began bad mouthing Silas Lyman, but Silas Lyman was facing conclusive DNA evidence from two pieces of evidence, one found on the victim's body and one found at the crime scene that conclusively identified Anthony Sanchez. He tried implying that the DNA could belong to Glenn Sanchez when he questioned the DNA analyst. However, she very clearly said, no, Sanchez is a composite of both his father and his mother. His father's DNA is not going to be identical to his DNA. So he was doing the best with what he had, but, you know, he had conclusive DNA. There's, that's a very difficult burden to overcome. 
And so anyway, so he was permitted to withdraw. But if you saw in um, in that uh, propaganda film that I sent you, you know, they're claiming Silas Lyman was so mean and horrible. And as you can see from the things that he filed, he worked with what he had and he did the best he could. The best he could with what he had. Absolutely. So um, and this is when Joe Robertson uh, or Joel Robertson appeared on um may 23rd 2006 because lyman was permitted to withdraw because they were bad mouthing him um the formal sentencing occurred on june 6th uh, an order was entered on june 8th with notice of intent to appeal determining indigency appointing appellate counsel ordering preparation of the appeal record granting trial counsel's motion to withdraw and notice of appellate counsel and designation of the record a death warrant was signed on June 9th, 2006. Um, there was also an order on June 19th allowing psychological testing of Sanchez by A. McGarren, Ph.D., and R. Kishore, Ph.D., and allowing Sanchez to remain in Cleveland County Jail for that forensic examination. A certificate of appeal was filed on June 15, 2006, and the case was assigned docket number D-2006-627 at the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, which also entered an order on July 18, 2006, staying the execution. Sanchez's counsel for direct appeal was Michael D. Moorhead, Janet Chesley, and Joe P. Robertson. The appeal, the state was uh, represented on appeal by the Oklahoma Attorney General and Cleveland County DA. Uh, Sanchez's issues raised on appeal were Proposition 1, that the district court committed reversible error by trying him before the jury in shackles in violation of 22 OS 2001, Section 15. Now, why would he be tried in shackles? Because he hasn't escaped from the penitentiary on his record. And it was a recent escape from the penitentiary. So, and unfortunately, the, the clerk, the court did not put that on the record, um, did not get that on the record. So the, the appellate court criticized them ultimately for not making a record of the reason for this. And they said in future cases, if you don't have a record, we're going to reverse. Right. But um, that is why he was tried in shackles because he has an escape on his record. Uh, proposition two, the district court denied a full and fair examination of prospective jurors regarding their opinions on the death penalty. Proposition three, the state seizure of appellant's DNA violated his constitutional right to be secure in his person from unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, pursuant to U.S. Constitution Amendments 4 and 14 and Oklahoma Constitutional Article 2, Section 30. Proposition 4 was that the district court committed error when it admitted evidence tending to show that shoe prints at the scene of the Buskin murder were similar to a pair of Nike shoes owned by appellant. Specifically, the admission of a former girlfriend's calendar entry was inadmissible hearsay and the state failed to establish a sufficient nexus associating appellant 
with a pair of Nike Air Max 2 shoes and the shoe impressions photographed at the scene. Um, Proposition 5, the evidence is insufficient to fix Sanchez of murder and rape. While he concedes that the DNA evidence establishes a strong connection between Sanchez and a sexual assault, he argues the evidence of murder is insufficient. The major points are as follows. Nothing whatsoever places him in the car, meaning none of the foot fingerprints developed from inside Miss Buskin's vehicle could be matched to him. While a witness described Julie Buskin as a female she saw in the red car near Lake Stanley Draper, the witness's description of the driver as an older man points to someone other than Sanchez, who had just turned 18. Because of the narrow time frame established by the respective sightings related by the one Lake Stanley Draper witness who, who saw two people riding together around 645 and the second who saw a lone driver leaving Lake Stanley Draper around 715, the sexual assault probably occurred elsewhere. Sanchez argues, argues that the times involved lend themselves to more than one person involved. The absence of trauma to Julie's vaginal area and the absence of any detectable semen or spermatozoa in the, the vaginal cavity fails to establish the penetration required by statute to convict Sanchez of first-degree rape. This is where sociopath comes along, although that was probably an attorney's argument. But more likely than not, based on Sanchez's claims, because we're hearing those claims now. Um, proposition six, the district court erroneously admitted sentencing stage evidence showing appellant's sexual assault of a girlfriend in 2001 as proof of the continuing threat aggravating circumstance um, because that, that charge was dropped. Proposition seven, prosecutorial misconduct in the sentencing phase, closing arguments renders his death sentence unreliable and unfair by emphasizing that a death verdict could only be the result of 12 people unanimously returning a verdict, improperly appealing to societal alarm by urging the jury to imagine Sanchez embarking on a reign of terror with homemade weapons obtained within the prison walls, referring to Sanchez and his actions as evil and stating that some people come to symbolize evil by their infamous acts and interjecting God into the proceedings. Proposition 8 was the state's use of continuing threat aggravating circumstance results in a cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and that cites uh, U.S. Constitutional Amendments 8 and 14 and Constitu Oklahoma Constitutional Article 2, Section 9. Um, the Proposition 9 was that district court's instruction on mitigating circumstances was inadequate. Proposition 10 was ineffective assistance of counsel under the 6th and 14th Amendments in Article 2, Section 20 of the Oklahoma Constitution, as follows. Defense counsel failed to marshal the evidence by all but conceding appellant's guilt of rape and sodomy, failed to object to improper arguments discussed in Proposition 7, and failed to discover and utilize additional mitigating evidence of appellant's turbulent family background. And then Proposition 11 was the good old cumulative error warrants reversal or modification of the sentence. On February 9, 2007, there was an order remanding the matter to Judge Hetherington for findings of fact and holding briefing in abeyance 
until resolution of Sanchez's objection to completion of the record on appeal, which I believe dealt with color photographs. Um, and I'm going to skip over some of this stuff. Apparently, his attorneys or what was transmitted to the Court of Appeal were black and white copies of photographs that were in the record. And so they objected to that. And the attorney was ultimately, uh, the clerk was ordered to produce color copies, which were mailed to Michael Moorhead, uh, Sanchez's attorney, on March 19, 2007. Mm -hmm. Um. A briefing schedule was then set on May 17, 2007, placing uh, Sanchez's brief to 120 days from the date of that order. Um, then Sanchez, on August 1, 2007, filed a second notice of objection to completion of record on appeal and a renewed second objection uh, on September 12, 2007. An order was entered on the 14th of September directing the clerk at the OCCA to return sealed juror questionnaires to the district court to adequately complete the appeal record. Holding briefing and abeyance during the period of appeal record is being completed. Also ordering the district court to make its determination and complete the appeal record within 30 days from the date of this order and holding uh, the balance of, of Sanchez's a briefing time in abeyance, which was 45 days that would commence on the date the sealed juror questionnaires were transmitted. So this is two times that he's objected to the record and gotten an abeyance while the record was supplemented. Mm -hmm. um, so again, this is showing the attorneys doing their jobs properly. Absolutely. Uh, it like, looks like they went, they did everything possible to me. Right. And so on October 5th, 2007, sealed juror questionnaires were transmitted to the OCCA clerk and received by the OCCA clerk. Um, an order was entered on October 30th, establishing, establishing access to the juror questionnaires and resetting the briefing schedule. <coughs> Um, they also sought an order in December directing the district court to advise whether original questionnaires of the entire veneer were available. Um, you know, the veneer who were questioned but excused from service, uh, if the questionnaires for those people had not been destroyed, they wanted them sealed and sent and supplemented in the record. So again, you know, December 2007, his attorneys find more things that need to be added to the record. Um, the district court responded on December 20th, 2007. Whatever their response was isn't highlighted in the in the docket, so I can't tell whether those veneer questionnaires were available or not. On uh, January 11th, 2008, the Court of Criminal Appeals enters an order finding the appeal record is complete as filed and resetting the briefing schedule, uh, ordering that Sanchez's brief was due 30 days from the date of this order and the state's brief was due within 60 days of Sanchez's brief. 
Uh, Sanchez filed his brief on April 10th, 2008, which I believe he had a couple of extensions of time that he asked for and got. Uh, he also filed an application for an evidentiary hearing on his Sixth Amendment claims regarding the shackles and additional mitigation evidence. Um, and he filed a motion to amend on June 2nd, 2008, uh, to amend his application for evidentiary hearing on Sixth Amendment claims. The uh, state filed an appellee brief on August 8th, 2008. They got a couple of extensions as well. The cause was submitted on August 11th, 2008. Sanchez filed a reply brief on August 28th, 2008. Now, on December 18th, 2008, the clerk of the Court of Criminal Appeals received a document from Thomas Glenn Sanchez that was titled Information That Needs to Be Put on the Record. Sanchez complained that none of Anthony's lawyers have listened to him, that he had a tape of Lyman and Box where he met them. He tried to meet with them in Panera Bread in Norman. He said they stormed out of that meeting. Now, this is some person who wouldn't meet with Sanchez's investigator. Right, right. But he's claiming to have tried to meet with them. In, and probably what happened is he tried to meet with them in Panera Bread, and they realized he was recording them, and so they left. Mm -hmm. um, he said Moorhead and Chesley have never talked to him. And uh, I'm just going to put this out there. If your child is over the age of 18... His attorneys, A, do not have to do what you tell them to do. B, do not have to listen to you. And C, do not have to talk to you. Right. And in some cases, it is better that your your child's attorneys do not do any of those things. Because then that interferes with the attorney-client relationship between your child and his attorney and that's never a good thing right because the fifth amendment doesn't really protect parents does it the sixth amendment no this well i mean it, if you're asked to testify i mean if if the if the parents oh, no, no 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 and you know yeah if you say something incriminating to your child's attorney your child's attorney can use that against you mm -hmm. and is completely free to do that uh, because there is no attorney-client relationship. Um, now, if your child is underage, you have some control, but not, well, you have some control, but you should let the attorney drive the bus. Because mm -hmm. as we've seen with Brendan Dassey, you know, Barb, Barb let the family drive the bus. And so Brendan ended up not testifying. And that ended up, he ended up being convicted and, and getting a long sentence. Um, he complained that Anthony had never met Chesley. He uh, complained that Moorhead and Chesley accused him of committing the murder and letting Anthony take the fall. Um he says he's been unable to meet with Anthony's post-conviction lawyers, Wendy Hobbs and an attorney named Lewis. 
Uh, he also wanted to provide information to the record that Anthony's lawyer should know. He claimed there's nothing that says Anthony murdered and raped Julie. Anthony was convicted on DNA evidence. There were no spermatozoa detected on the oral swab, vaginal swabs, or pajama bottoms, which I don't believe is true. Um, I believe that the spermatozoa were detected, but the DNA was inconclusive. Right. An inconclusive DNA profile was obtained from the rectal swab and pajama bottoms, but he ignores the conclusive profiles from the panties and the leotard. Mm-hmm. He alleges that Joyce Gilchrist may have had something to do with the DNA since she wasn't terminated until 2001. Uh, again, Oklahoma pro- uh, Oklahoma City Police Department didn't process the DNA. Um, it may have briefly been in their custody, but it, they didn't process it. He alleges the ME's report states that there are signs of healing, which doesn't happen instantly. And, and he doesn't. He doesn't say what signs of healing. I mean, yes, she could have had a bruise on her leg or a bruise on her foot or a bruise on her arm or a bruise on her hand that she got at the golf course at work that wasn't related to her murder that showed signs of healing. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were probably a multitude of injuries from her abduction, her rape and her murder, which showed no signs of healing. So he doesn't say what showed signs of healing. Um, he The sketch made by eyewitness doesn't look like Anthony. That witness perfectly described Julie. So therefore her description of Anthony, of her script description of the man is equally unassailable. Uh, he alleges there were 49 fingerprints found and none of them belonged to Anthony. He alleges 18 fingerprints were, ident- were unidentified he says Anthony had several girlfriends and was was expecting his first child. And I love this. Anthony was pr- promiscuous. Therefore, he didn't have to rape anybody. No. <laughs> but actually, someone who's that promiscuous, if you can't find one of your many girlfriends to say yes, then lo and behold, you go out and find some poor woman to, you know, scratch your itch. Right. It's not rape is not really about not being no. able to have sex anyway. I mean, a lot of people uh, can get all the sex they want, but they get some kind of um, enjoyment, power. Um, power, of- yeah. Um, Anthony ha- was with multiple girls around the time of the murder. His lawyers never talked to any of the girlfriends. He was promiscuous, but that doesn't make him a killer or rapist. He was a has a weak stomach and could not do a crime like this. His uh, lawyers, his OIDS lawyers are not properly representing him. There's nothing at all that says Anthony murder, rape Julie, which he repeats. Um, Anthony's foot without a shoe or sock is bigger than a size nine. Anthony's foot without a shoe or stock is 10.38, 10 and 38 inches. Um, The only shoe prints with Julie's body. Uh, he's making a solid record saying that OIDS lawyers are not adequately representing my son, Anthony Castillo Sanchez. And something tells me that Glenn Sanchez is probably equally sociopathic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, he's not he's he's excluded by DNA. And that's the bottom line. 
Uh, there was also a letter sent by Kathy Hodge, which is Anthony's stepmother. And Anthony filed another pro se document on December 23rd, 2008, that's entitled Documentary Proof that I've Been Trying to Get Put Forth. Uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals set oral argument for dis for Ju blah, for February 10th, 2009 at 10 a.m. in the Dick Bell courtroom at the Oklahoma University College of Law in Norman, which is um, gosh, I don't want to say I, I think cathartic is the word because that's where she where that's where Julie was abducted from. Mm -hmm. um, but they and that wasn't done because it was Julie's case. It was done. They periodically would hold oral argument so that the law students could come and observe oral arguments before the court uh, as part of their curriculum. Um, so then on January 8, 2009, um, the clerk, the court filed an order directing the clerk to return the original pro se and third party correspondence and a copy of this order to the senders. The documents will not be filed in the record of this court. The court directs that a copy of each item be sent to the AG and appellants appeal council. Um, and that's how they, this was filed with the recent state writ, but I put it where it, where it happened during the course of uh, the direct appeal. And then oral argument was held on February 10th, 2009. Supplemental authorities were filed by each party on the 23rd and 24th of February. Uh, an order was entered on March 16th, 2009, remanding to the district court for an evidentiary hearing within 30 days of this order to take relevant evidence and prepare a complete transcript within 15 days of the hearing. And this was on the shackle, the tri being tried in shackles. Uh, and then the parties could file supplemental briefs not to exceed 10 pages. Uh, a motion to continue the hearing was granted on April 24, 2009. Uh, on May 1st, 2009, the district court entered an order granting the joint motion for continuance of ed evidentiary hearing and denying Sanchez's motion to expand the scope of the hearing and for a directive to prepare findings of fact and conclusions of law. Uh, the hearing was held on February, on May 18th. An order was issued upon remand on May 22nd. The transcript was received by the Court of Criminal Appeals on June 3rd. Supplemental briefs were filed on June 12th. Uh, Sanchez sent a letter to with information to be put on the record on August 5th, 2009. Uh, on August 12th, he filed a request to file a supplemental brief concerning new authority on issues previously raised. Uh, that motion was denied on August 28th, 2009. Uh, the clerk was also directed to return the pro se correspondence. Again, the items were not properly before the court and cannot be considered in connection with appellants pending cases, <clears throat> but copies were to be sent to the AG and appellants appeal council. The court entered their decision on December 14, 2009. 
The judgment and sentence of the District Court of Cleveland County was affirmed uh, pursuant to 3.15 rules of the Court of Criminal Appeals. The mandate was issued upon the delivery and filing of the decision, and the opinion was uh, authored by Judge Lewis with Judge Johnson, uh, Judge C. Johnson and A. Johnson, uh, Judge Lumpkin and Judge Chapel all concurring. Uh, the defendant appealed the judgment of the District Court of Cleveland County, Oklahoma, that convicted him of first-degree murder, uh, first-degree rape, and forcible sodomy under uh, Oklahoma statutes, and then imposed the death penalty. So he may not have been a, a convicted of kidnapping, after all. Um, because it's not listed in the direct appeal. Okay. Um, not, neither here nor there. But on review, the court held that the district court aired under Oklahoma statute title 22, section 15, 2001, in acquiescing to the request of law enforcement personnel that defendant be shackled because the statute required a factual predicate sufficient to justify the restraint and no showing was made. However, because care was taken to conceal the restraints and no juror observed them, defendants suffered no prejudice. The evidence was sufficient to support defendants' convictions because it tended to show that defendant forced the victim into her car, sexually assaulted her, murdered her, dumped her body, and took some of her belongings with him, where DNA evidence extracted from sperm was found in the vehicle, on the victim, and on her clothing, where phone calls made from the victim's phone after her murder were placed to defendant's then-girlfriend then and where footprints of a Nike tread pattern were found at the scene and defendant owned shoes with the same tread pattern and of the same size. After reviewing the evidence and finding that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating evidence, the court concluded the sentence of death was factually supported and appropriate. The judgment of conviction and imposition of a capital sentence was affirmed. And um, I want to repeat on, on this case um, the findings on some of the specific propositions because we're hearing complaints about those things now as reasons for doubt. Hmm. And so you know, I want to make it clear these aren't new and these were heard by his jury and his jury convicted him anyway. Right. Um, first proposition, the evidence before us is that every precaution was taken to conceal appellant's restraints from jurors and no trial juror actually viewed him in restraints. We do not condone the district court's error in ordering appellant restrained in violation of section 15 and such restraint will not be permitted without a proper factual record in the future. However, appellant has not shown how the district court's error had any substantial influence on the outcome of trial. Proposition one therefore requires no relief. Defense counsel at trial remarked that when a prospective juror's contradictory responses to the automatic death penalty question suggested a mis misunderstanding, the court has, upon further inquiry, cleared up any of the confusion. That is a fair assignment of the proceedings before us. Further, appellant sought no additional peremptory challenges 
and identified no juror on the final panel who was unacceptable to him and thus cannot show present prejudice from the district court's alleged errors. No relief is warranted. And this was where the jurors were being act, asked a question of basically, if you find him guilty of murder, uh, will you sentence him to death automatically? Mm -hmm. And the way the question was framed, some of the jurors were confused and said, I don't understand what you mean. And others were saying, well, I can't. I've got to consider life in prison with or without parole. Right. Um, so that that's what that that's what that complaint dealt with is that so there was a they were questioning whether they some jurors might have thought it was a mandatory death penalty. That they sentenced him to death if they found him guilty of murder, correct? Oh. Correct. And you know, that was ensuring that they understood that that was not, they didn't have to find him. They didn't have to sentence him to death. They found him guilty of murder. <laughs> so um, proposition three, we are persuaded that the seizure of appellant's blood and development of his DNA profile were reasonable under the fourth amendment to the United States constitution and article two, section 30 of the Oklahoma constitution. The state's legitimate interest in the collection and storage of this highly probative form of identification for use by law enforcement in the detection and prevention of past and future crimes far outweighs a convicted prisoner's minimal interest in freedom from a brief intrusion required to collect a sample of genetic material. The district court properly denied appellant's motion to suppress the resulting evidence of his DNA profile and its comparison to the previously unknown DNA profile developed after the murder of Julie Buskin. Proper, proposition three is denied. The jury was certainly entitled to weigh the plausibility of appellant's serial defense that someone else killed Julie by considering shoe impressions and other evidence left at the scene, including appellant's DNA, as circumstantial evidence about who committed the murder. We find the evidence tended to place the defendant at the scene of the crime and it was for the jury to, to determine the weight and value to be given this evidence. Proposition four is without merit. Um, proposition five is denied based on the following findings. Three strands of evidence contradict Appellant's major premise that he cannot be placed at the scene of the murder or in Miss Buskin's car. Uh, and as an aside, they don't have to do both. They only have to do one. They can place him in the car or they can place him at the crime scene. If they place him at the car, the evidence that being unable to place him at the crime scene is going to make it a little bit more challenging. But you have logical and reasonable inferences that bolster that. But being able to place him at the crime scene and not in the car is not fatal to... Uh, his guilt. First, appellant's DNA matched the unknown DNA isolated from sperm fractions recovered from Miss Buskin's panty and the unknown DNA from the pink leotard found discarded at the crime scene. Police also identified human sperm from stains found on pajama bottoms recovered from Miss Buskin's car. 
These facts permit the logical inference that the sperm on the pajama bottoms, pardon me, in Muskin's car is also appellants, despite inconclusive DNA results on the pajama bottoms. Second, records of activity on Ms. Buskin's missing cell phone show a call placed to a number which investigators eventually associated with Appellant's former girlfriend over 30 hours after the Buskin murder. The logical inference is that Appellant was in possession of Ms. Buskin's phone and he got the phone from her car where she usually left it. Finally, the shoe impressions discussed in Proposition 4, consistent with a pair of Nike shoes owned by Appellant, tend to establish his presence where Miss Buskin was murdered. The direct and circumstantial evidence is sufficient to support the jury's finding that appellant sexually assaulted and murdered Julie Buskin. The evidence of abduction and the condition of Miss Buskin's body and clothing at the time of her death support the inference that appellant intended a sexual assault. These circumstances in the presence of human spermatozoa in the anal cavity readily establish the penetration necessary to convict appellant of forcible sodomy. The evidence of observable, observable trauma to Ms. Buskin's genital area supports the inference of Sanchez's intent to forcibly penetrate the genitalia. Any penetration of the female genitalia by the male penis, however slight, is sufficient to constitute the completed offense of rape. The state's evidence of a contusion to the interior surface of the labia, when considered in light, most favorable to the prosecution, with all the remaining facts and circumstances, would permit any rational trier of fact to find the elements of rape established beyond a reasonable doubt. Appellant's sexual assault of an ex-girlfriend in 2001, almost five years after the murder of Julie Buskin and his resulting second-degree burglary conviction, were relevant to the jury's consideration of this aggravating circumstance. Proposition 6 is denied. Proposition 5 was denied based on the findings above. <clears throat> the religious statements made by counsel for both parties here were brief and insignificant in view of the overwhelming evidence of aggravating circumstances, which clearly explain the jury's verdict. We find no prosecutorial misconduct warranting reversal or modification of the sentence. Proposition 7 is denied. The continuing threat aggravating circumstances consistent with both tradition, traditional and modern standards of decency as reflected in the Supreme Court's decisions. The incapacitation rationale and the statutory language of the aggravating circumstance contain a common sense core of meaning that criminal juries are capable of understanding. Future dangerousness is historically and logically relevant to whether a convicted murderer should suffer the extreme penalty. The continuing threat aggravating circumstance therefore narrows the class of a convicted murderers eligible for the death penalty in a meaningful way and when combined with other procedural safeguards in the Oklahoma statutes sufficiently minimizes the risk of a wholly arbitrary death sentence for first degree murder. Proposition 8 is denied. Uh, based on our treatment of the issue in a case called Harris versus State, appellant has not shown plain error in the district court's use of the jury instruction, uh, I think it was regarding mitigating circumstances. Proposition 9 requires no relief. 
Considering the record as a whole, we are unable to say that council's failure to discover and utilize the type of mitigation evidence identified in the supplemental materials was not part of a reasonable trial strategy. Indeed, the materials actually present no persuasive proof that trial counsel was unfamiliar with these facts. Council may have simply decided not to present the facts in the detail now considered more effective by appellate counsel. This record fails to establish clear and convincing evidence of a strong possibility that counsel was ineffective. We therefore deny appellant's motion to supplement the record by remanding the case for an, this case for an evidentiary hearing. Proposition 10 is denied. We found error in the district court's order requiring appellant to wear restraints during the trial. Appellant has not shown that the error resulted in prejudice. We thus conclude the errors at trial had no cumulative prejudicial effect, which rendered the trial unfair or the outcome unreliable. Proposition 11 requires no relief. We have carefully reviewed the record of this trial and conclude the jury was not improperly influenced by passion, prejudice, or any other arbitrary factor in finding the existence of the aggravating circumstances beyond a reasonable doubt and that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating evidence. The sentence of death is factually supported and appropriate. Um, Sanchez filed a petition for rehearing and motion to withdraw mandate on January 4th, 2010. Uh, he also filed a motion to preserve juror questionnaires on January 20th, 2010. On February 23rd, 2010, the court denied his pre pre uh, petition for rehearing, but on the 25th, granted the motion to preserve, ordering that the jury questionnaires would remain part of the record on appeal under seal and ordering the clerk to maintain the jury records under seal after the mandate issued. They ordered that the questionnaires were not to become part of the public record and would not be open for inspection except upon order of the criminal uh, court of criminal appeals or an order of a higher court having jurisdiction of appellant's criminal case. Sanchez filed an extent motion for extension of time or request for extension of time at the U.S. Supreme Court on which was granted on May 12, 2010. His writ was filed on July 23, 2010. On September 15, 2010, Sanchez sent a letter to the clerk of the Court of Criminal Appeals. And um, I, it was a little bit longer, but I'm I'm just summarizing. I have wrote several letters to my lawyer of record, Michael Moorhead. Plus, I have made several phone calls and have not gotten any response to any of them. My family has also tried to contact Mr. Moorhead. Still no response. So I have wrote a letter to Mr. Moorhead and had it notarized and would like to have you give a copy to all of the judges and put it on the record that I have tried to talk to my lawyer at the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System. Thank you very much for your time. And... I omitted the name of the clerk. And then there's a letter to Moorhead dated August 18th, 2010. Um, it stated that uh, Sanchez had read the OCCA opinion for the first time on August 6th, 2010. Uh, he said what Moorhead wrote in the appeal was not what Sanchez wanted. There were is issues Sanchez would never have agreed to let Moorhead raise, presumably uh, accusing Glenn Sanchez. It I wondered, fair, about, I wondered uh, about that, but he's accusing him now, right? His attorneys are accusing him now. 
Oh, oh, and I'll oh. go into that a little bit later. But okay. yeah, he accusing Glenn Sanchez was not not what Sanchez wanted. And again, you know, Sanchez, his complaints and his family's complaints about all of his attorneys are entirely outcome based. Hmm. They are based on the fact that they lost. That means they didn't do a good enough job. I see. Without respect to the evidence underlying Sanchez's conviction or his death sentence or anything that happened during, before, during, and after the trial and appeals. So um, Sanchez complains it isn't fair that Moorhead wrote those things without letting Sanchez read over them first. Moorhead had several months to write his brief and it is Sanchez's life at stake, not Moorhead's. Moorhead works for Sanchez. Sanchez doesn't work for Moorhead. Moorhead did not say Sanchez was innocent of all charges in the Cleveland County case. I, Anthony Castillo, Sanchez am innocent. Moorhead made it seem that Sanchez conceded to some of the charges and that he implicated his own father in some of the charges. Sanchez says, what kind of demented lawyer are you? I feel that you have done your best to help seal my fate at death. Moorhead did not argue any, anything Sanchez asked him to argue. Moorhead didn't look at anything Sanchez tried to tell him about. Moorhead just went off and done your own thing. Sanchez told Moorhead from the beginning that something is not right from the start of his cases. And then he lists his CF-98-1592, CF-99-813, CF-01-1236, and CF-2001-5098 to CF-00325. Moorhead did not want to check out what Sanchez was saying about them. Uh, there are several issues that Sanchez believed Moorhead overlooked, but he doesn't detail what those were. Alleges that the DOC took his DNA in multiple cases, not just 015098. Alleges his DNA was taken in three different cases at three different times. Then alleges that his DNA was taken five times. Asked where are those samples are and who has control of them? He says DNA is not the only issue with the past case that Sanchez has asked Moorhead to look at. Sanchez hopes he gets a lawyer who will do a great job instead of like Moorhead, who just does as little as possible, just but just enough to make it look good on paper. Sanchez orders Moorhead to write a retraction to the courts, telling them the truth and that the appeal was in Moorhead's words and not Sanchez. Sanchez warns a specific retraction of the concession that DNA establishes a, a strong connection and an appellant implicated his own father in the killing. Sanchez has never conceded to any part of case CF-00325. Not once has Sanchez said his father may have murdered anyone. Those are Moorhead's word, not, not out of Moorhead's mouth. Sanchez would not approve of Moorhead writing anything remotely close to that. Sanchez has repeatedly told Moorhead he is innocent. Uh, and this motherfucker, Sanchez, turned after he was convicted and addressed Julie's family and said, I didn't kill your daughter. Oh, my goodness. That's where I get sociopath. Uh, yes. Sanchez has repeatedly told Moorhead he's innocent. What part of that don't you understand? Informs Moorhead that a copy of this letter will be sent to all the judges of the OCCA and to all the judges of the U U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. Uh, he complains that Moorhead doesn't answer his letters or phone calls, and Sanchez wants everyone to know what Moorhead is doing. 
Uh, a conference was held by the U.S. Supreme Court on September 28, 2010, and on October 4, 2010, an order denying Sanchez's writ was issued, and so Sanchez's conviction and sentence became final on October 4, 2010. So, any questions, anything that struck you, anything you would like to comment on, Rob? Well, it's just obvious that this guy, like you say, is a sociopath. And although I, I didn't realize that he did not want his father implicated, um, they've certainly done a good job of doing that in the meantime. So I guess his father finally committed suicide? Yes, in 2022. And I'll I'll talk about that when I get to that that portion. Okay. Um and he was also diagnosed with cancer in 2021. So uh, his suicide may have had more to do with cancer diagnosis than his alleged guilt about Julie Buskett. Exactly, because, of course, he knew that he was not implicated he, there was nothing to convict him of the murder mm -hmm. his dna didn't really match did it no no the dna um the dna at trial sanchez's attorneys did try to argue well the dna could belong to the father right and the dna analyst said no uh his father's dna would only be consistent on half because Anthony Sanchez is a composite of his father's DNA and his mother's DNA. Okay. So this particular well, I, DNA profile would not match on all 16 loci to Sanchez's father. And, you know, with DNA, and I'm not, I'm not purporting to be an expert, but as I understand it, um, you can have, at one loci, if your mother is 15, 16, and your father is 11, 14, at that same loci, you can have an 11 and a 16. Mm -hmm. So you get one from your mother and one from your father. Right. Or you can have, uh, you know, 15 and 14. Or you can have 15, 16 at that loci because that's you got that from your mom. Right. Like I said, I'm not I'm not an expert and I'm not a scientific person, but um I think primarily it's at each loci you get one allele from your mother and one allele from your father. I think that's right. I mean, uh, I, that, as I understand it, that would be correct. So um, now if, you're, if your mother and father each have an 11, then you might have 11-11, or you might have 11 from your father and 14 from your mother. You know, if your father's 11-16 and your mother's 11-14. Mm -hmm. So you'll have 11 from your father and 14. But they can't say whether the 11 came from the father or the mother. You know. um, now, 
if they had done YSTR, they might have found something more consistent with with Glenn Sanchez. But again, they didn't do YSTR and the 16 loci that they did have excluded Glenn Sanchez. And they excluded him before the trial. So then um, Sanchez moved on to his first round of state post-conviction. His attorneys were Wendy Thomas Hobbs and someone named Lewis who was cited but doesn't appear on any of the dockets that I saw. Uh, also, the Oklahoma AG and Cleveland County DA continued their work on the case. Um, the application was assigned number PCD 2006-1011. The initial filing was on, on September 21st, 2006. A notice of completion was filed on December 7th, 2006. The record uh, was docketed in the direct appeal on December 12, 2006. The notice of completion of supplemental record was filed on December 19, 2006. Notice of compliance uh, was filed on March 20, 2007, which supplemented the color copies of exhibits. Um, an extension of time was granted on December 4, 2008 to file a full PCR application, which was due November 26, 2008. The original application was filed on January 26, 2009 because there was an intervening extension of time, second extension of time granted. Sanchez raised Proposition 1 in effective assistance of appellate counsel for failing to raise a direct appeal claim that Sanchez was erroneously excluded from certain proceedings during his trial, an ineffective assistance of trial and appellate counsel based on the absence of an assurance that jurors were unanimous in their finding that a specific predicate crime supported their finding of the aggravated circumstance the murder was committed for the purpose of avoiding or preventing a lawful arrest or prosecution and failure to raise this challenge to the death sentence on direct appeal. Proposition 3, appellate counsel unreasonably omitted a challenge to the sentencing stage jury instructions due to the district court's failure to instruct the jury that a critical factor in sentencing stage had to be found beyond a reasonable doubt, which was in violation of Apprendi versus New Jersey and Ring versus Arizona. Proposition 4 sought relief based on cumulative error. Sanchez also filed a motion for evidentiary hearing and to conduct discovery on January 26, 2009. The court rendered its opinion on April 19, 2010. It found that after carefully reviewing petitioner's application for post-conviction relief and its request for discovery and evidentiary hearing, we conclude there exists no controverted, previously unresolved factual issues material to the legality of petitioner's confinement. Petitioner could have previously raised his asserted grounds for post-conviction review. The grounds for review, which are properly presented, have no merit, and the current post-conviction statutes warrant no relief. Um, his original application for post-conviction relief 
motion for evidentiary hearing and request for production of this for request to conduct discovery are denied. And that was by Judge Lewis, C. Johnson and A. Johnson, Lumpkin and Chapel all concurred. And again, I think it's important with the claims being made on behalf of Sanchez now to look at what the court had to say in 2010 about some of these issues that are now being are zombified basically the record reflects before us reflects that petitioner did not appear in court at the beginning of his jury trial and trial counsel explained that petitioner's refusal to appear was in response to the district court order that petitioner wear restraints during the jury trial the district court found that petitioner was refusing to comply and proceeded with a brief orientation of the jurors Trial counsel stated, for purposes of this orientation, I waive his appearance, but added that I did not have time to discuss that with him. The orientation did not involve the substantive merits of the case, but were about courthouse logistics and personnel and the basic procedures for voir dire examination. Petitioner intended an in-camera hearing after the jury orientation, at which time he complained about his representation by counsel. He does not allege that he was excluded from any other trial proceedings. Petitioner's refusal, refusal to attend court proceedings, apparently to protest the shackling order, does not warrant post-conviction relief, as we have repeatedly held that a defendant waives the right to be present at trial by his voluntary absence from the proceedings. Petitioner's legal remedy to the shackling order was to appeal the conviction if subjected to trial and shackles, not to refuse to attend the trial itself. The petitioner has not shown the deficient performance or prejudice necessary for a violation of the right to effective appellate counsel, as he was voluntary, voluntarily absent from trial and waived his right to be present. Because this claim is not supported by the facts or case law, omission of this issue from the direct appeal was objectively reasonable and requires no relief. The state at trial asserted at least three predicate crimes in support of the allegation that petitioner committed this murder to avoid or prevent a lawful arrest or prosecution. We find the evidence sufficiently establishes that petitioner committed several predicate crimes against his victim, including forcible rape, anal sodomy, and kidnapping, and murdered her with the intent to prevent his identification as a perpetrator. Petitioner presents no controlling law requiring that jurors unanimously agree he committed a specific predicate crime in connection with its finding of this aggravating circumstances. Even if there were such an assurance required by law, the jury's unanimous verdicts finding appellant guilty of forcible rape and anal sodomy provide conclusive evidence of unanimity um, unanimity, I think. Unanimity <laughs> <laughs> concerning at least two of the predicate crimes supporting the aggravating circumstances here. Petitioner fails to show either deficient performance in the omission of this claim on direct appeal or the requisite prejudice resulting from counsel's alleged unprofessional error. Proposition two requires no relief. 
Petitioner acknowledges that our cases applying Apprendi ring in the capital sentencing context have declined to require an instruction telling the jury that it also has to find the aggravating circumstance of or circumstances must outweigh the mitigating evidence beyond a reasonable doubt before the jury may sentence a defendant to death. And that ref, uh, that cites Glossop versus State, 2007 Oklahoma CR 12, uh, 157P 3rd, 143. Mm. We find no reason to depart from established case law. Because the claim has no merit, its omission from the direct appeal brief was not deficient performance and did not did not defy, deny petitioner the effective assistance of counsel. On direct appeal, we found the errors committed at trial were both individually and cumulatively, cumulatively harmless and did not require reversal of the conviction or sentences. This much of the claim is race judicata. Petitioner fails to show any additional errors on post-conviction review. Proposition 4 requires no relief. Uh, Sanchez moved to federal court for federal habeas claims. He was re represented there by Mark H. Barrett and Randall Thomas Coyne. The state was represented by Jennifer L. Crabb uh, of the Oklahoma AG office. The case was before the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Oklahoma. Uh, the Honorable Joe Heaton, which I think may be the only judge in the Western Distri District of Oklahoma because I don't recall seeing other names, at least not during this period. Uh, and the docket number assigned was 5 colon 10 dash CV 01171 dash HE. So this was handled by a judge only, no magistrate judge. Uh, a motion to appoint counsel was filed on, on November 1st, 2010. An order was entered granting that motion to appoint on December, on November 4th. And Mark Barrett was appointed and a case management conference was set for December 7th, 2010. Um, a motion to appoint co-counsel was filed and that was granted on November 10th, appointing Randall Coyne. A scheduling order was entered on December 7th. The petition for habeas corpus was due August 4th, 2011. Motions for discovery were due by August 4, 2011. A motion for evidentiary hearing would be due by October 4, 2011. Respondent's response was due, set to be filed 60 days after filing of the petition. Uh, it also ordered the petitioner could file a reply no later than 30 days after the state's response or the warden's response. And the respondent was ordered to transmit mm -hmm. the state court record before response would be due. Um, that an order was entered on July 25th, 2011, granting an unopposed extension of time to file petition to, uh, to September 23rd and to extend the time to file a request for evidentiary hearing to November 22nd. And this also extended time to file the respondent's response is transmit state court record. Um, Sanchez filed a motion to appoint investigator, which was denied on July 28, 2011. A second um, unopposed extension of time to file a petition was granted on the 19th of September, and the petition was then due on October 2nd. 
and other deadlines were extended and further deadlines were set in that order. Uh, the state court record was filed on September 29, 2011. Sanchez's petition for writ of habeas corpus and motion for discovery was filed on October 3rd, 2011. And uh, he first, on ground one, he claimed that the older man seen with Julie Buska near the lake not Sanchez was implicated as an abductor, whereas neither eyewitness identified Sanchez. Taking into the account, taking into account the evidence that a third person, possibly petitioner Sanchez's father, had criminal association with Miss Buskin, and taking notice that the events preceding petitioner's DNA being on Miss Buskin's clothing are not revealed by any testimony, the evidence as to all three counts is insufficient to meet the 14th Amendment requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And these are uh, basically Sanchez went on in his argument to summarize the weaknesses in the evidence, uh, weaknesses in evidence from the eyewitnesses who don't identify Sanchez, uh, allegations that father and son could be confused for one another, uh, types of evidence and listing types of evidence absence from the case. And again, you know, they say, well, no evidence was found in the car that tied Sanchez to the car. The jury knew that. Right. Um, you know, that doesn't mean, and and they argue about no DNA found on some swabs and ignore the leotard and the panties. Um, you know, no evidence found on her. They allege no DNA found on her body, on Julie's body, but his DNA was found in her underwear, which was on her body. So that's a lie. And weren't there some inconclusive DNA found on her body? There there was inconclusive DNA on an anal swab, and there was inconclusive DNA on the pajama bottoms. Okay. Which were both determined to have spermatozoa. But the DNA recovered from the spermatozoa was a partial profile that was inconclusive. And no, nothing says that Sanchez was eliminated from those inconclusive results. Right. So, um, and then he goes on to argue about the DNA evidence. Um, he argues about the reported corroborating evidence. He, he mischaracterizes the phone evidence, uh, arguing that his feet are larger than a size nine. Um, but Again, you know, that the time to argue about that and to prove pr to prove that basically is before the trial jury. Mm -hmm. um, it's not it's not enough if you do it now. Right. About, <laughs> and then about, about yeah, the go phone, ahead about the phone evidence. Um, as I understand it, um, Sanchez had the phone and attempted to dial a number that was only one number off from his girlfriend's number. Well, no, the, the, in actuality, the number that he dialed did belong and was confirmed to belong to the ex-girlfriend. Right. Okay. And then there were a couple of other calls that were one number off from numbers that they eventually associated with friends of Sanchez, oh, either other girlfriends or other associates. I see. So there is the, there is confirmed that a number belonging to the girlfriend or ex-girlfriend was called. 
once again, they're misrepresenting and mischaracterizing the phone evidence to be doubtful when mm -hmm. it was not. Um, they argue about the DNA evidence and the purported corroborating evidence. The nest, the they argue that it's necessary. Did there be evidence of personal participation in homicide, not just connection to site of the homicide or connection to the perpetrator? Right. Um, that the connection to a related felony was not sufficient and that the alternative rational explanations carry weight. Uh, although they never offered any alternative rational explanations, they offered wild conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that DNA by itself does not provide sufficient evidence, citing a Bonner case. And then they concluded their argument on ground one. Ground two, the trial court denied Sanchez's right to fully and fairly examine prospective jurors regarding their opinions on the death penalty. And by modifying the uniform uh, jury instruction, crippling Sanchez's right to impanel an appropriately death and life-qualified jury in violation of the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments. Um, they basically, they want to be able to ask, they want to be able to seat jurors who will not find death penalty, who will never sentence anybody to death. That's what this BS basically means they want somebody that's going to choose a life sentence over a death sentence mm -hmm. and um that's not the law that's not required but the defense bar continues to argue it hoping that they'll get a judge who will say yes it is and change the face of death penalty advocacy going forward um, and then they complained about the clarifying questions on the death, the mandatory death, uh, issue raised on direct appeal and the, uh, courts, they also complained about the district courts, overly restrictive rulings on defense counsel led Wadir. Ground three, uh, they argue because it was apparent that Sanchez was restrained by leg irons during the entirety of his trial and because the restraints interfered with his ability to participate in his trial, Sanchez's trial contravened the 14th Amendment's due process clause, where whether or not the shackles were ever visible to jurors. Uh, ground four, prosecutorial misconduct during the sentencing stage deprived Sanchez of a fair trial, uh, a fair and reliable sentencing hearing, rather. And they, he, they cite to some of the improper comments made by the prosecutor and invoking God and characterizing Sanchez as a, de a demon, um, flagrant use of fear mongering and speculation and arguing facts not in evidence, um, and inviting the jury to evade responsibility for Sanchez's death sentence. Um, ground five, Sanchez's trial counsel failed to present a meaningful case contending that Sanchez was innocent particularly failing to em emphasize the striking connection between the Merriman sketch and petitioner's father. And since counsel otherwise failed to vigorously represent the client's interests, 
this court should grant relief on the basis of counsel's constitutionally ineffective performance. Uh, and that was failure to produce evidence pointing toward Anthony Sanchez's innocence and trial counsel's failure to object to the prosecutor's closing remarks constituted unreasonable and deficient performance and prejudice Sanchez's sixth and 14th Amendment rights to effective assistance of counsel. Ground six was direct appeal counsel provided ineffective assistance of counsel um, by depriving, uh, by failing to argue that the avoiding arrest aggravator should be stricken because of an apparent lack of juror unanim unanimity. Sanchez was deprived of effective assistance of counsel when appellate counsel failed to argue that he was unconstitutionally excluded from the courtroom during jury selection. Um, ground seven was the unconsented to suspicionless seizure of Sanchez's blood for purposes of including his DNA profile in a law enforcement database constituted an unreasonable search and seizure in violation of the fourth and 14th amendments. Uh, and then he just argued general fourth amendment arguments, uh, ground eight use of a prior charge, which had been dismissed as evidence of Sanchez's alleged alleged continuing threat rendered his death sentence unconstitutional because the original charge was to violent contact conduct and the charge was adjudicated as involving nonviolent activity. And this is basically saying, well, he was charged with rape, but that was dropped. And so he was only, uh, he only pled guilty to a nonviolent second degree burglary. Mm-hmm. Uh, ground nine, the Oklahoma Year Uniform Jury Instructions definition of mitigating circumstances prevented the jury from consideration of mitigation evidence in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. Ground 10 was a complaint about the avoiding arrest aggravator, arguing that it should have been stricken because the record does not support a conclusion that the jury unanimously agreed on the same predicate crime. Uh, and then arguing that the evidence was insufficient to support the rape conviction and the failure of the jury to specify the predicate crime or crimes it relied upon in support of avoiding arrest aggravator required reversal. Ground 11, the use of the continuing threat was unconstitutional. Um, this is also common claim. And finally, ground 12, the accumulation of error deprived Sanchez of due process and a reliable sentencing proceeding in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. Um, the motion, he also filed a motion for discovery. He wanted depositions of all jurors regarding the issue of his shackling and related communications regarding shackling and cooperation with the defense. He wanted to depose Glenn Sanchez. He wanted complete DNA results as to all prosecution or prosecution instigated DNA testing, including com complete information about any results or partial results relating to the vaginal, rectal, or oral swabs of Joel Buskin. He wanted complete results of all prosecution contacts, direct or indirect, with the two Lake Stanley Draper witnesses, uh, Merriman and Kill, uh, including information relating to any attempt by the witnesses to make a photo or in-person identification of Sanchez and the results of any attempts to identify and the contents of any discussions regarding identification with the witnesses. He wanted a complete criminal history and other background information 
uh, regarding Glenn Sanchez's activities associated with the homicide case, including all information received purporting to implicate Glenn Sanchez in any activity relating to Joel Bluskin, and all reports from the Norman Police Department, Cleveland County Sheriff's Office, and or Cleveland County District Attorney's Office relating to Glenn Sanchez circling the courthouse during Sanchez's jury trial and otherwise exhibiting unusual behavior during the pendency of Sanchez's case and Glenn Sanchez reported assaults on former wives, girlfriends, and other associates. And I think that this, in all honesty, was an attempt to try and set up a Brady claim. Probably. That's the, you know. Um, Even though he's your father, you should know this shit better than even the police did. Mm -hmm. But um, then an amended petition was filed, and that was basically just to correct a signature of counsel that was omitted from the original petition. Uh, And then the state, the warden filed an objection to the motion for discovery because it's a fishing expedition. Um, It's basically that's what it is. Uh, He filed a reply in support. uh, Sanchez filed a reply in support of the motion for discovery on October 28th and basically argued that he's presented information raising questions about whether eyewitnesses can eliminate him as being Joel Buskin's assailant. He has shown reason to suspect his father was a person in the car with Joel Buskin. He has shown there may be additional relevant information rela- relating to DNA testing, and that he has shown there may be additional relevant information regarding jurors' observations of him. The state filed an answer uh, or response to the petition, Um, They argued that the OCCA's determination that the evidence was sufficient to support petitioner's conviction is not contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. Ground two, the OCCA's denial of petitioner's claim that his jury was not sufficiently life qualified was not contrary to or unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. Ground three, the rejection of his claim that he was improperly restrained during trial is not contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. Uh, that's basically the bar they have to meet. Um, that the denial of prosecutorial misconduct claim uh, was not contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. And they argued the prosecutor did not improperly describe the jury's role. He did not argue facts not in evidence, uh, that Sanchez was not denied a fair trial by the prosecutor's references to evil, nor was he denied a fair trial by the prosecutor's reference to God. Um, Ground five, petitioners claim that counsel was ineffective for failing to present evidence of his alleged innocence, is unexhausted, and should be treated as procedurally barred. The OCCA's rejection of petitioners claim that trial counsel was ineffective for failure to object to alleged prosecutorial misconduct is not contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. And that may be ground six. I think I accidentally deleted something. Okay. Uh, The OCCA's denial of petitioners ineffective assistance of appellate counsel claim is not contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. Um, you know, basically trial counsel 
or appellate counsel doesn't have to raise arguments that aren't going to work. Um, and so appellate counsel was not uh, ineffective for failing to challenge avoiding arrest, aggravating circumstance, or Sanchez's alleged exclusion from the courtroom, which was voluntary. Right. Um, the uh, They argued that the federal court could not review petitioner's Fourth Amendment claim because he hadn't raised it in state court. Um, he never he didn't raise it at trial and he didn't raise it on appeal or in state post-conviction that the holding that evidence of the rape of his ex-girlfriend was properly admitted is not contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. Uh, the finding that the jury instructions did not unconstitutionally limit the jury's consideration of mitigation evidence etc. The OCCA's determination that the jury properly found the avoid arrest aggravating circumstance that the rejection of petitioner's claim that the continuing threat aggravating circumstance was unconstitutional and that the because the OCCA properly rejected all the claims presented to it, petitioner is not entitled to habeas, habeas relief on a claim of cumulative error. Um, Sanchez then went on to file a motion for evidentiary hearing and basically, you know, he's presented facts indicating someone other than Sanchez perpetrated the offense, making more or less the same arguments he made in the, um, motion for discovery, uh, highlighting the weaknesses in the evidence, like the shoe mat, the shoe pattern could have matched thousands of shoes and were not conclusively matched to him. But, you know, shoe impressions are consistent with or not consistent with. They're not to the exclusion yeah. Yeah, of exactly. all absent some unique marking on the defendant's shoe that appears only on the evidence pattern. Um, and arguing neither the size of the or his shoes uh, were determined. And he also argues about the, uh, they, what happened was they found a bullet in the home Sanchez shared with his father and girlfriend. And while they couldn't conclusively match the bullet to the bullet used to kill Julie, the two bullets were consistent with one another. They had the same markings. Um, and they never recovered the specific weapon. But um, they argue about that, you know, weakness of that evidence. Um, and he wants an, a hearing to support his actual innocence claims. Mm -hmm. um, the warden filed a supplement to the answer to complaint, which basically filed a copy of an unpublished Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals decision that Sanchez had cited. Uh, they also filed an objection to the motion for evidentiary hearing. Sanchez filed a reply in support and a reply in support of his petition. And on March 28, 2012, the court entered its findings um, and basically found that Sanchez had failed to present any specific allegations sufficient to demonstrate a showing of good cause to warrant discovery. 
um, that he had not demonstrated good cause regarding any discovery pertaining to his father. Uh, this is an order denying the motion for discovery, rather. That Glenn Sanchez had previously been uncooperative with the defense, that he may have information regarding the homicide, and in petitioner's opinion should be considered a suspect, does not rise above the level of unfounded speculation. Lastly, uh, the court found that good cause did not exist for discovery regarding the eyewitnesses or the DNA testing and results. Petitioner has not sufficiently demonstrated additional information exists and was not previously provided by the prosecution or that his requests amount to anything more than a fishing expedition. Nor has he identified what type of impeachment evidence he believes was withheld or how such evidence regarding the eyewitnesses would entitle him to habeas relief. Held that federal habeas is not a forum to relitigate state trials. Discovery is reserved for those situations where a petitioner demonstrates good cause by asserting specific allegations that, if fully developed, would entitle him to relief. Um, the findings were also similar on the evidentiary hearing um, and basically found accordingly for the, re the reasons set forth herein and for the reasons set forth in the court's orders denying his request for an investigator and his request for discovery, petitioner's motion for an evidentiary hearing and brief in support is denied. Uh, basically, he didn't um, he didn't develop the factual basis of, of his claim in state court, and um, he characterizes claims as new claims, but he's not demonstrated a basis for any exceptions of uh, 2254E2 in order to entitle him to an evidentiary hearing. None of his claims rely on a new rule of constitutional law retro retroactively applicable to his case or the factual predicates could not have been previously discovered through the exercise of due diligence. Um, and again, I mean, if, if his father's guilt was hinted at during trial and direct appeal, then he's always known that that's an option. So he should have developed it in state court. Um, additional state court records were filed in October of 2014. A memorandum opinion was entered on uh, February 17, 2015, and his position was basically denied. A judgment was entered, uh, also denying relief, uh, and a order denying certificate of appeal appealability was entered, denying a COA, which would be would give him uh, entitle him to appeal specific issues to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal. Sanchez did appeal to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal. His counsel, again, were Mark Barrett and Randall Coyne. Uh, the state was represented by Jennifer Crabb, Jennifer Dixon, and Jennifer Miller, the three Jennifers. <laughs> the record on appeal was filed April 27, 2015. Uh, Sanchez filed a case management statement of issues regarding issuance of a COA. So when you're denied in district court, you can seek one from the, from the appellate court. Mm -hmm. He, uh, the issues he raised were sufficiency of the ev evidence, examination of jurors regarding death penalty reviews, ineffective assistance of trial and appellate counsel, 
trial while in restraints, denial of motions for investigator discovery and evidentiary hearing by the district court. On September 15th, uh, he was granted uh, his request to file a renewed motion for certificate of appealability out of time was granted. And his renewed motion was filed on September 15th. Uh, the court, uh, the warden filed a response to a the motion for COA. And because the COA was ultimately denied by the appellate court, I'm not going to go into the issues raised or the arguments raised by either side because it's not really um, it, it's not really necessary. I don't think if I look at the case again, I may go there, but right now I don't think there's any need to go there. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he raising the same old issues over and over again? Correct. Yes, he is. And so, um, yeah. But, and that's another reason why I'm not going to just keep repeating them. <laughs> <laughs> um, the opinion was entered on um, January 6, 2016. And the court held that an inmate's renewed request to the merits panel for a certificate of appeal appealability was denied as he failed to make the requisite showing pursuant to 28 USCS section 2253 C2. There was no showing that he was denied a constitutional right because as to claims that the evidence was not sufficient to support his convictions, his counsel was ineffective or that the jurors were not properly examined as to their death penalty view Reasonable jurors could not debate the decision. The challenge was not exhausted or it was procedurally barred. Moreover, the inmate failed to sufficiently rebut the presumption that the state appellate court correctly found that the shackles used during his trial were not visible. So the outcome was request for COA denied. And I want to repeat this finding because this is the crux of why Anthony Sanchez was convicted and why the courts have not granted his request for, for relief, no matter what the issues were that he raised. Throughout this case, including now, Mr. Sanchez cannot overcome the DNA evidence from, from sperm found on the victim's clothing linking him to the crimes. He has not impeached that evidence including the expert's testimony that his DNA would have common alleles with his father, the only person Mr. Sanchez points to as a possible, possible alternative perpetrator in the case, but that neither their, but that their DNA would not be the same. The corroborating evidence of Mr. Sanchez's shoe prints at the murder scene and the call from the victim's cell phone to Mr. Sanchez's ex-girlfriend the day following the crimes undermines any suggestion which is implausible in the first place that his DNA was planted on the victim. Mr. Sanchez also seeks a certificate of appealability on whether his trial counsel was ineffective in failing to present, investigate and present evidence that another person, his father, committed the crimes. The district court found he had not exhausted the claim in state court and had not made an actual innocence showing to excuse the procedural default. Mr. Sanchez has attempted to demonstrate actual in, in, innocence 
by theorizing that the evidence might have shown his father committed the crimes. As addressed above, Mr. Sanchez's argument fails because DNA evidence linked Mr. Sanchez to the crime scene, and although his DNA shares common alleles with his father's, their DNA is not the same. Mr. Sanchez has provided no basis on which reasonable jurists could debate either the district court's procedural ruling or whether Mr. Sanchez has made a substantial showing of a constitutional violation. We therefore deny a certificate of appealability. Of course, he filed a request for an extension of time at the U.S. Supreme Court, which was granted, and he was given an extension to June 6, 2016. His petition for writ of certiorari was filed on June 6, 2016. The respondent brief was filed by the warden. He filed a reply on July 11, 2016. A conference was held on September 26, 2016, and the order denying his writ was filed on October 3, 2016. So, any thoughts, questions? I, not really. I think you're doing a great job in presenting the evidence. I mean, I it just amazes me that all of these things have to be relitigated over and over again because there's no way to get around the DNA. And then these, the other evidence that supports the DNA is pretty conclusive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, all right. So he went back to federal court on um, with the same counsel, Mark Barrett and Randall Coyne. He filed a request at the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal to... Uh, file a second or successive petition of writ of habeas corpus uh, pursuant to Hearst versus Florida, which was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2015. The Supreme Court announced for the first time that the weighing decision underlying a sentence of death must be found by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt because Sanchez's jury was not properly instructed on the burden of proof as to his death sentence, he is now entitled to seek relief that was previously unavailable as Hearst creates a new and retroactive rule of constitutional law and provides grounds for Sanchez's request to file a second or successive petition pursuant to 2244B2A. On January 18, 2017, the court filed an order directing the clerk's office to open a new original proceeding for the purpose of pro processing this motion in accordance with the circuit's practices for pro processing motions for authorization to file successive petitions. That was docket under docket number 617, pardon me, dash 6014. The warden filed a response on the 20th of January, 2017. Sanchez filed a reply in support of his motion on January 27th, 2017. On February 13, 2017, an order was issued in which the Tenth Circuit held that the Supreme Court is the only entity that can make a new rule retroactive, and that's pursuant to Tyler versus Kane. As we held Henry Jones, and that was Julius Jones, I believe, yeah. which was 17-6008, uh, the Supreme Court has not made its decision in Hearst retroactively applicable to cases on collateral review. 
which means um, his request to file a successive petition based on the decision first was denied. And the denial of authorizations shall not be appealable and shall not be the subject of a petition for rehearing or writ of certiorari. So that was the end of his second federal habeas claim. Okay. Um, Barrett went back to state court uh, for a subsequent post-conviction claim. And that was assigned docket number PCD 2017-666. Oh my God, how appropriate. <laughs> and uh, that was a, his second application for post-conviction release relief. Proposition one, he argued that newly discovered evidence of a greater risk of execution due his, to his race and or the race and or gender of the victim violates his rights under the 5th, 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments and parallel provisions of the Oklahoma Constitution. He also filed a motion for discovery and a motion for evidentiary hearing. On August 22nd, 2017, the Court of Criminal Appeals rendered an opinion. Uh, and this was Lump, Judges Lumpkin, Lewis, and Hudson. The They found that the factual basis for the inmate's new post-conviction claim was a statistical analysis of race, gender, and comparative sentencing outcomes in Oklahoma homicides in a 2016 study that Sanchez had not shown sufficient specific facts to establish that the identified patterns of race and gender disparity were not ascertainable through the exercise of reasonable diligence on or before his original post-conviction application in 2009, the post-conviction relief on that claim was procedurally barred, that his proffered evidence, even if proven and viewed in light of the evidence as a whole, was insufficient to establish by clear and convincing evidence that, but for the alleged error, no reasonable fact finder would have found him guilty of the underlying offense or would have rendered the penalty of death and the application was denied. The mandate also was issued on August 24th, 2017. I have seven, sorry. Uh, another state post-conviction claim was raised by Sanchez pro se in a third application for post-conviction relief filed on December 3rd, 2020, in which Sanchez argued that the state of Oklahoma lacked jurisdiction to arrest, detain, try, or confine him on any of his criminal felony cases, including the murder of Julie Buskin pursuant to McGirt, which is the uh, Oklahoma uh, lack of jurisdiction over members of Indian communities in Oklahoma, that they have to be tried by tribal courts. Uh, Sanchez claims in this filing to be a Chickasaw citizen, a Chickasaw Nation Indian, a Choctaw Nation Indian, and a Mississippi Choctaw Nation, a Mississippi Choctaw Indian, and presents a certificate of citizenship dated June 12, 1997, and a Bureau of Interior Indian Affairs card dated 4-10-2008, designated him as 932nd Chickasaw Choctaw, Mississippi Choctaw. Oh, my goodness. 
Uh, he also presents some territorial maps de depicting Indian lands, but they're from 1856 to 1866 and 1855, not necessarily um, applicable to 1996 because I am entirely positive that the boundaries of Indian land in Oklahoma have been re redrawn since 1866. Uh, he also puts, he had one of Lake Stanley Draper saying that that's smack dab in the middle of tribal land. Um, he seeks a little compassion and forgiveness and to be exonerated of all charges and to be immediately substantially compensated all court costs, court fines, all court bills to be immediately completely nullified. Uh, he also filed an affidavit of uh, informal pauperous on December 3rd, 2020, which basically so that he could get court appointed counsel. Um, on February 24th, 2021, uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals filed an order declining jurisdiction ruling that the court will only entertain applications for post-conviction relief if petitioner has sought and been denied relief in the district court. And that's pursuant to rules 5.1 and 5.2a of the Rules of Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, Title 22, Chapter 18, uh, 2021. Petitioner is required to file with this court, among other things, a certified copy of the district court order denying the request for relief. So Sanchez needed to go to the district court with his claim that the state last jur lacked jurisdiction because he was an, a member of an Indian tribe. Is is this the first case you've known about that that um, alleged this? No, um, this was alleged by Benjamin Cole uh, uh -huh. because his the daughter that he murdered was a member of an Indian tribe. Right, I remember that now. And um, I think um, Hanson tried to make this allegation as well. He's the one who the federal court refused or the federal prisons refused to return him to be executed because he's serving his time in a federal court, in a federal right. prison. Pardon right. me. So, um, so he should have gone to the district court and alleged the lack of jurisdiction. And then when the, you know, that he would appeal that finding to the court of criminal appeals, petitioner's pleading requesting post-conviction release does not contain a copy of a trial court order or record sufficient to prove he was denied relief in the district court. The court declines jurisdiction and dismisses this matter. And that was a uh, concurrence was entered by Kuhn, Roland, Lumpkin, Lewis, and Hudson. Um, Thomas Sanchez or Thomas Glenn Sanchez died on April 24, 2022, allegedly by suicide committed on the porch of the residence of a girlfriend named Charlotte Beatty. Um, mm. I don't, I don't have, I don't find any records of that, um, corroborating any of that. However, I mean, there was an autopsy done by the medical examiner and samples were taken from Glenn Sanchez, thankfully. Um, however, I do find references extrajudicial references 
to a cancer diagnosis sometime in 2021 and actually a reference to a growth on Glenn Sanchez's neck, uh, quite a large growth on Sanchez's neck Mm -hmm. um, as a result or subsequent to that cancer diagnosis. So Glenn Sanchez's suicide probably had more to do with that than it did have to do with alleged guilt as the perpetrator of this homicide. And as we remember, both Glenn and Anthony Sanchez vehemently denied this in in documents provided to the Court of Criminal Appeals. I would would say that suicide was about other things in his life, probably cancer, because he'd been under this kind of allegation by uh, uh, Anthony's attorney since early in the two thousands. Yes, it may have, or- but it may have been more the cancer diagnosis. He was also, I believe, a lifelong alcoholic, hmm. and um, there are references again, extrajudicial. Uh, to uh, opioid addiction. Oh, okay. And so those can contribute to a a rapid decline in uh, mental and emotional health. Sure. Uh, and can and can also contribute to suicidal ideation, especially when paired with a cancer diagnosis and a large growth on the neck or face Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, something has to be done about, and it's going to be a substantial, it's going to be substantially disfiguring. Exactly. Um, So uh, at this time, counsel for uh, Sanchez remain Mark Barrett and Cleveland County DA, Oklahoma AG uh, on February 3rd, 2023, Barrett filed on behalf of Sanchez a fourth application for post-conviction relief in a death penalty case, alleging that newly discovered evidence establishes and or provides a reasonable likelihood of an evidentiary hearing establishing by clear and convincing evidence that Sanchez would not have been convicted and would not have received a death sentence if all evidence Porting towards the guilt of Thomas Glenn Sanchez, petitioner's father, had been known to the jury. Consequently, Sanchez's convictions and sentences should be vacated under Oklahoma law and under the 8th and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution. The alleged evidence excluding Sanchez is the 18 unidentified fingerprints from the car, two eyewitnesses who failed to identify Sanchez as the perpetrator they saw in the car, Uh, The first witness describing a man older than Buskin when Sanchez had just turned 18. The second witness testifying he had not seen the man in the car since December 20th, 1996. uh, And that a sketch produced by the first witness seeming to match a 1996 photo of Thomas Glenn Sanchez. Charlotte Mm -hmm. Beatty, a girlfriend of Glenn Sanchez, reported that he confessed to being the person who committed the homicide. Beatty first heard Glenn confessed in July of 2020, but was too afraid of him to discuss the matter with anyone during Glenn's lifetime. 
Sanchez died on April 24, 2022. Undersigned counsel was told about Glenn's confession on December 6, 2022, and engaged an investigator on December 7, 2022. And Beatty was interviewed by the investigator on December 20th, 2022. So somebody else told Barrett that Glenn Sanchez confessed, but he doesn't identify who that person was. Mm -hmm. um, apparently an affidavit, I don't have the supporting documents because they're not available online, but an affidavit from Sanchez was filed, but all it said was that uh, somebody had told him his father confessed. Was this supposed to be a deathbed confession? Well, no, it's not because the the time frames that Charlotte Beatty refers to are exclusive of April twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. So it's just hearsay. They're in twenty and twenty one. Uh, there are a lot of problems. We'll go into that when we look at the response. But also the propaganda film, she tells Jeff Hood that the first confession was in twenty fourteen which is not consistent with her affidavit that it was July of 2020. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's hearsay and, and she's making you know, inconsistent statements. I don't see how she can't keep her story. Straight. You could use something like that. No. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. Um, Sanchez also filed a, a motion for discovery. Oh, my intercut. It says my internet connection is unstable. So yeah, you keep you keep going in and out for me. Not too bad. I mean, just <laughs> two or three times when I thought, okay, did she hang up? <laughs> but, no. Um, I have a um, it's you know panoramic Wi-Fi, uh -huh. but for some reason, when it gets cloudy, my internet connection can fade in and out. So my apologies. I don't think it's going to go out. I think it's just going to be every now and then it's going to get unstable. Yeah, so I'll try and keep an eye. And when it does, I'll repeat what I was saying. Okay. Um, again, he files a motion for discovery that new facts point to a different perpetrator um, that uh, the evidence was presented in the direct appeal and in federal habeas, which pointed towards Sanchez's father, which isn't true. The evidence was found to be lacking. Uh, the issue is serious enough to warrant further explanation. And uh, Sanchez has asked that the state be directed to provide all information tending to incriminate Glenn Sanchez, uh, all evidence regarding Sanchez's erratic behavior, uh, which these are all things that Sanchez probably knows better than the state. Um, all information regarding lineups presented to the witnesses, DNA reports or other DNA evidence reporting toward or potentially porting toward any other person, any person other than Anthony Sanchez, uh, information regarding statements taken or observations made or investigations done in relation to Glenn Sanchez, um, they also point out that Sanchez has never made any incriminating statements and that none of the property stolen from the car was recovered when Sanchez was arrested, which was, what, almost eight years 
after the murder, of course, he's not going to be in possession of the, the property he stole. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he also filed for an evidentiary hearing um, to get all this testimony on the record. Now, the state did send a request that the OSBI examine the leotard and compare that with Glenn Sanchez's DNA. This was done. Um, they were able to develop a DNA profile from Glenn Sanchez, uh, a bloodstain card from the ME for Glenn Sanchez. And they compared that to the leotard or the profile developed from the leotard. And they excluded Glenn Sanchez as a potential donor of the DNA on that, on that leotard. Okay. Um, he does not match the DNA po- profile from the sperm fraction of the pink leotard cutting. Now they did do reverse paternity DNA testing, which indicates that the DNA profile from Thomas Sanchez cannot be excluded with at least 99.9% probability as the potential biological father of the source of the DNA profile obtained from the sperm fraction of the pink leotard cutting. Um, So, uh, you know, I mean, the only way someone other than Anthony Sanchez is guilty of is, is if Anthony Sanchez has an identical twin. Right, right. Period. I mean, the DNA is conclusive. And in spite of the misrepresentations about the DNA evidence, um, Sanchez has never undermined or refuted the conclusive DNA match to himself. Right. And I wanted to ask, uh, and I think I know the answer, but um, has anyone ever said that they both were involved in this crime? No. I didn't think so. And I believe that that is part of the state's response. <laughs> okay. Um, they argue that Petitioner is not factually innocent. The allegation that Thomas Glenn Sanchez killed Julie Buskin was disproven at trial and has since been rejected by every court to review the evidence of Sanchez's guilt. Sanchez's new evidence is unreliable hearsay. Sanchez's sperm, not his father, was found in Julie's underwear and leotard. New DNA testing further inculpates Sanchez. The state's DNA expert at trial testified that the sperm found on Julie's underwear and leotard were consistent with Sanchez's DNA at all 16 genetic loci with the probability of selecting an unrelated individual with the same genetic profile being one in 200 quintillion Caucasians, one in 20 quintillion African-Americans, and one in 94 quadrillion Southwest Hispanics. The possibility that DNA DNA could belong to Glenn Sanchez was explored and rejected at trial. And then he cites... Um, Ms. Keith, who was the DNA expert, her response at trial uh, to a question by Sanchez's attorney implying that Thomas Sanchez could be the source of the DNA because he's Anthony's father. She said, your DNA profile will be a composite of your biological mother and your biological father. 
it will not be identical. Your mother will be different than your father and your father will be different than your mother. And you will be different from your mother and father, but you will be a composite of both of them. A difference in alleles at even one location eliminates the possibility that the person whose known DNA is being compared to the suspect DNA was a contributor of the suspect DNA. Sanchez and his father strenuously objected to appellate counsel strategy discussed above. The jury was aware of the following facts raised by Sanchez, that the bullet found in Sanchez's former residence was not matched to the bullet that killed Julie, but did have similar characteristics and could not be excluded, that shoe prints in the sand were not known to be the same size as Sanchez's shoes, Sanchez's fingerprints and hair were not matched to the unidentified fingerprints and hair found in Julie's car, that the two witnesses who saw Sanchez driving to and from Lake Stanley Draper did not identify Sanchez as the man they saw almost 10 years earlier, that one of the witnesses believed the man she saw was older, and it was in the response to this that I think a footnote said she admitted that she's not good at judging people's ages. And again, she wasn't questioned for two years. So by the time she was questioned, her perception was that the man she saw was 25 or 30. When had she been immediately questioned, she might have said early 20s. She might have said 18 to 25. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know because she wasn't questioned immediately. Um, it does make a difference. I mean, uh, uh, time will change your memories and, you know, whatever she learned about the case or whatever may have had some kind of made some contribution to, you know, how she remembered the man. Right, right. And that in petitioner's opinion, the sketch produced by that witness resembles a photograph of Thomas Glenn Sanchez. Um, With the exception of the photograph, the jury was aware of all the facts relied on by Sanchez. Every court to have considered these arguments has concluded that the DNA and other corroborating evidence supported the jury's verdict. Sanchez's new evidence fares no better. There is no hearsay exception which would permit consideration of the alleged statements. There are no corroborating circumstances which clearly indicate the trustworthiness of the statement so as to render it admissible. The affidavit and the alleged statements are wholly untrustworthy and would not be admissible under the exceptional circumstances exception. The statements do not cast doubt on Sanchez's conviction. Glenn Sanchez provided no details which might have corroborated his confession. It's unclear what he meant when he said he should have done a better job of killing Julie, given that she was killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. It appears highly likely that the confessions, if they were made, were intended to frighten Miss Beatty. And she admits sometimes Glenn clearly was trying to scare me by mentioning the Buskin homicide. It is unlikely Glenn Sanchez could have watched Julie die, given that she was killed by a contact gunshot wound to the head and appears to have fallen immediately to the ground deceased. Beatty admits she did not contact Sanchez's attorney about Glenn's confession and first mentioned it to someone investigating in December 2022 when David Ballard came to her residence. 
She further admits that she never discussed the confessions with Sanchez and was too scared of Glenn while he was alive to even consider revealing what he'd admitted to doing. Finally, even after his death, Beatty remained unwilling to talk about Glenn's alleged admissions, and Miss Beatty's silence on this matter is suspicious. Sanchez's attorney, Mark Barrett, is withholding this, the name of the individual who provided him with information on 12-6-2022, and he sheds no light as to how that person allegedly had knowledge of the information. They also argued that the evidence against Sanchez is overwhelming. Using a blood sample from Thomas Glenn Sanchez obtained from the medical examiner's office, OSBI concluded that Thomas Glenn Sanchez's DNA profile does, mat does not match the DNA pro profile from the sperm fraction of the pink leotard cutting. Thomas Glenn Sanchez was therefore positively excluded as a potential donor to the sperm fraction on the, the pink leotard cutting. Thomas Glenn Sanchez cannot be excluded at, as, at at least a 99.9% .9 probability as the potential biological father of the source of the DNA profile obtained from the sperm fraction of the pink leotard cutting. And the very recent lab report yet again confirms what the state and courts have known for many years. Sanchez and Sanchez alone is responsible for the abduction, rape, forcible sodomy, and brutal murder of Julie Buskin on the morning of December 20th, 1996. Sanchez has still not even attempted to offer any rational alternative explanation for the presence of his sperm on Miss Buskin's clothing, including her intimate garments. If Sanchez sexually assaulted Julie and then his father murdered her, Sanchez has known, since, known that since December 20th, 1996. Sanchez has never claimed that is what happened. In fact, he has vehemently denied it, and so did his father. Sanchez's affidavit says nothing more than that someone told him his father confessed. Sanchez's sperm was on Julie's leotard, and his father's was not. As noted by the Western District, all the evidence points to a single individual as a person who abducted, raped, and murdered Julie. Sanchez is not actually innocent and relief should be not denied. They also filed a motion, an objection to the motion for discovery, citing exclusion of Glenn Sanchez and also the, is citing the same thing in the objection to the motion for evidentiary hearing. Um, the Court of Criminal Appeals issued their opinion on April 13, 2023, uh, denying relief and ordering the mandate to be issued upon delivery of and filing of this decision. And, you know, once again, they, uh, they found as every court has found that the state presented evidence at trial that appellant's DNA matched the DNA profile generated from the sperm shell fraction isolated on Miss Buskin's panty panties and also matched the sperm cell fraction isolated from the pink leotard discarded at the crime scene. The matches corresponded to appellant's DNA at all 16 genetic loci tested. The state's DNA expert characterized the probability of a random DNA match on the busket evidence with an unrelated individual other than appellant and, you know, cites the, the one in 200.7 trillion, one in 20.45 quadrillion 
and one in 94.07 trillion Southwest Hispanics. Apparently, the new DNA analysis was the quadrillion statistics cited in the respondent's brief. These are the trial uh, statistics. Mm-hmm. Appellant also could not be excluded as a donor of a DNA mixture isolated from epithelial cell fractions on the panties and leotard. Police also identified human sperm from stains found on pajama bottoms recovered from Miss Buskin's car. These facts permit the logical inference that the sperm on the pajama bottoms in Miss Buskin's car is also appellant's despite inconclusive DNA results on the pajama bottoms. Second, Records of activity on Ms. Buskin's missing cell phone show a call placed to a number which investigators eventually associated with Appellant's former girlfriend over 30 hours after Julie's murder. The logical inference is that Appellant was in possession of Ms. Buskin's phone and he got the phone from her car where she usually left it. Finally, the shoe impressions consistent with a pair of Nike shoes owned by Appellant tend to establish his presence where Ms. Buskin was murdered. This direct and circumstantial evidence supports the jury's finding that appellant sexually assaulted and murdered Julie Buskin. And that's from their uh, direct appeal opinion. They went on to say that Charlotte Beatty's recent sworn statements add nothing of significant probative value to the evidence for or against petitioner Anthony Sanchez. We are not confronted here with a solemn deathbed confession stating verifiable facts that exonerate a person wrongfully condemned. Glenn Sanchez took his own life more than 25 years after these crimes and apparently left no written, recorded, or corroborative evidence seeking to exonerate Anthony Sanchez by admitting his own guilt or tending to otherwise prove Glenn's allegedly numerous admissions that he, rather than his son Anthony, killed Julie Buskin. Charlotte Beatty's description of Glenn Sanchez portrays a violent and profoundly disturbed man given to vague and menacing claims of involvement in the murder for which his son was convicted. At least sometimes Glenn was clearly trying to scare Beatty by mentioning the Buskin homicide. Glenn Sanchez's alleged statements to Beatty contain no details about when or how the crimes occurred, whether he acted alone or with petitioner or others, or any other verifiable facts. Considering the other evidence against Anthony Sanchez, this is hardly surprising. Charlotte Beatty's affidavit is itself hearsay, and insofar as its contents could touch upon the guilt or innocence of Anthony Sanchez, the statements she attributes to Glenn Sanchez are also hearsay. Though a confession of guilt is plainly incriminating evidence against its maker, Glenn Sanchez's alleged confessions would almost surely be inadmissible in any legal proceeding if offered to exonerate Anthony Sanchez of the Buskin murder. The Oklahoma Evidence Code provides that where a hearsay declarant is unavailable to testify, as in this case, a statement tending to expose the declarant to criminal liability and offered to exculpate the accused is not admissible unless corroborating circumstances clearly indicate the trustworthiness of the statement. We find the statements attributed to Glenn Sanchez by Charlotte Beatty are not corroborated by the remaining evidence 
and the circumstances appearing to this court do not clearly indicate the trustworthiness of the statements. Indeed, considering the remaining evidence, even if Glenn Sanchez had confessed his guilt on the witness stand under oath at Anthony Sanchez's murder trial, no reasonable fact finder would have acquitted Anthony Sanchez of killing Julie Buskin. We conclude that Glenn Sanchez's confessions, even if proven to have been made to Charlotte Beatty when viewed in light of the evidence as a whole, do not establish by clear and convincing evidence that but for this new information, no reasonable fact finder would have found Anthony Sanchez guilty of Julie Buskin's murder or rendered the penalty of death. Post-conviction relief on this previously unavailable factual basis is procedurally barred. Petitioner's motions for discovery and evidence are also evidentiary hearing are also denied. His motion for discovery does not rebut the presumption of prior compliance with discovery or raise any substantial question of compliance with earlier discovery orders, nor does he establish that the material being sought would have been would have resulted in a different outcome at trial. The motion for evidentiary hearing to further develop the allegations in Charlotte Beatty's affidavit does not establish by clear and convincing evidence that any proposed testimony has or is likely to have the required support in law and fact to be relevant to the allegation raised in the application for post-conviction relief. No relief is warranted. Um, so after that, um, or prior to this 2023 action, um, there was a motion for leave to file under seal filed in, in October of 2018, filed in federal court. Uh, that was granted and a some some sealed ex parte documents were filed on behalf of Sanchez. They were, these were probably budgets for um, clemency proceedings. Um, Sanchez was a part of the challenge to Oklahoma's execution protocol making its way through the federal courts. So his execution date could not have been set, but in anticipation of a date being set, the uh, Barrett was seeking to ensure that they could quickly get a budget in place and have a budget so that they could uh, proceed on behalf of Sanchez. Um because these are all under seal, I can't access them. I don't know exactly what they were for, but they filed documents in 2018. Heaton entered an order on June 1st, 2020. Uh, and then on June, on February 3rd, 2023, when Barrett is proceeding in state court with these allegations, a handwritten statement is, uh, Pre presented by Sanchez stating that he doesn't want Barrett and Coyne to represent him. He states they are not working in my best interest. I think he gave that to Jeff Hood, who is a, quote, spiritual advisor, unquote. And oh. if you watch the um, propaganda stories about the hearing in the state court for Eccles, um, motion for DNA testing, I believe that Jeff Hood also appeared 
there with Eccles. I thought I had seen him before. His hairdo is and very yeah. They're they're both these odd Gandalf looking motherfuckers. Well, not Gandalf because Gandalf's not bored, huh? Not bald. <laughs> right. They're they're bald, but they have these Gandalf beards, right. and they wear these odd pants that look like a poopy diaper. Yeah. Um. <laughs> not not because I may not I may be old and all, and I don't know what's credible now but to me they wouldn't be credible i wouldn't see them that way no um and then on march 15 2023 uh sanchez sends another letter to barrett that says due to sustained neglect i've lost all confidence in your services for over six years i did not hear from you in the last four months i have tried to give you another chance you have done nothing to regain my trust this is why I am firing you and substituting you with attorney Greg Gardner and attorney Eric Allen as my counsel for the entirety of my case, including all remaining legal appeals and clemency. Um, on the 21st of April, 2023, a motion for leave to file notice ex parte and under seal is filed in uh, federal court on behalf of Sanchez. An order granting that motion is entered on April 25th. Another ex parte document is filed on May 3rd, 2023. On May 18th, a motion to appoint counsel is filed seeking appointment of Greg Gardner, an attorney from Boulder, Colorado, to represent Sanchez in clemency proceedings and at the clemency hearing, and attorney Eric Allen to uh, be appointed to further defend Sanchez. Let me clear something up for folks out there who might be confused. Um, the propaganda out there says he's accused of these things. No, he has been convicted of murder, first-degree murder, rape, forcible sodomy. He may or may not have been also been convicted of kidnapping. It's unclear. So um, these are not accusations. This is not defense. This is trying uh, to save his life, trying to have his sentence somehow computed so that he will not be executed for the crimes for which he's been convicted. But he is not accused. He is not in need of defense. Right. Once convicted, you have no presumption of innocence. Correct. The presumption um, is guilty correct and apparently jeff hood has a history well we'll go into this a little bit later so alan admits that he's not spoken with sanchez but he's had exhaustive communications with his spiritual advisor jeff hood alan represents his, himself as qualified to represent sanchez because he rep has represented clients in ohio illinois michigan and texas before the and before the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh court of appeals, he's also uh, represented clients before the U.S. Supreme Court and Court of Claims. He has clients charged. He's represented clients charged with capital crimes, including Ohio versus Marvin Lee Smith, Ohio versus Glenn McCoy, and Ohio versus Wesley Park. He has represented counsel, uh, capital defendants in habeas process in Ohio. He was pro bono counsel in 
Chantha Kumane versus Davis in the Eastern District of Texas. He has represented capital habeas petitioners in Alabama, included in including an ex parte Riley, ex parte Shanklin, ex parte White, ex parte ex parte Shewing, and ex parte Wimley. He has taught capital defense sem seminars for the Ohio Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and Trial Lawyers College Death Penalty Seminar, uh, also known as the Jerry Spence Method. He's qualified under Section 3599. He has experience following clemency petitions, including on behalf of Richard Cooey, who was executed in 2008, John Henry Ramirez, and Kosul Chanta Kumain, who were both executed in 2022. And he uh, says Sanchez wants Allen to represent him and accepts this appointment. Although, how can you know he wants you to represent him if you haven't talked to him? Right. Um, that's one of those troubling things that defense attorneys just don't ever seem to catch. Uh, an order was filed on May 24th, 2023, setting a hearing on the motions filed by Allen on the 6th of, then that was set for June 6, 2023 at 9 a.m. The hearing was held on June 6, and the motions to appoint counsel and allow substitution were denied from the bench. The uh, court rendered a written order uh, and went on to find that the court concluded substitution is not warranted. The court concludes a purported basis for defendant's interest in new counsel to the effect that he has not heard from counsel in over six years is factually untrue and that the contacts and efforts of counsel in that period have been appropriate to the circumstances of his case. Further, the court concludes defendant's statements to the contrary reflect, reflect pressure and coaching from his nominal spiritual advisor, Mr. Jeff Hood, which is consistent with Mr. Hood's efforts in other cases to inject himself into the relationships between capital defendants and their counsel, and that such efforts are motivated at least in part by considerations other than the best interests of the client. And Hood was initially denied access to a capital defendant who was due to be executed. And I can't remember, I believe that might've been Eisenberg, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, then a motion was filed by Sanchez on June 15th, a pro se motion to waive and relinquish counsel. Sanchez claims counsel have only contacted him a few times in the last six to eight years, claims such abandonment has created a toxic atmosphere claims to have no trust in the direction they are trying to take his case in the coming months and saying he intends to pursue clemency and all further appeals pro se for himself. He understands that there are dangers in representing himself because he faces execution on September 21st, 2023. He acknowledges that there are possible consequences, but he has to fight for himself because no one else will. Attests that his waiver is made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily and that he has consulted his family and an outside attorney about his decision. So uh, what do you think his end game is here? I mean, I, I really, I don't know. I think that more likely than not, 
the attorneys will not pursue these wild conspiracy claims about the DNA evidence. And they won't lie to the courts the way Jeff Hood has no problem lying to the public. Um, I think he may have also been convinced that pursuing this in the court of public opinion is the way to go. Um, I know that in the last month, aside from appealing the denial of the motion to substitute and appoint new counsel, he hasn't filed anything. Are there any celebrities uh, backing him up? I mean, does he have Kim Kardashian or any? Not that I have seen yet. Uh -huh. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Kim usually tries to swoop in at the end. And then yeah. if the, if, if a stay of execution is granted by some miracle, uh, to claim that it was because of her intervention, exactly. Yeah. even though her intervention had zero to do, you know, as, as some would say, fuck all to do. With, <laughs> with you know i mean rodney reed didn't get a, a stay of execution because of uh public pressure and kim kardashian he got a stay of execution because he presented fabricated affidavits that said jimmy finnell confessed mm -hmm. and that those were strong enough to require development at a hearing uh, where they were found to be lacking any credibility. Right. Um, on the 22nd of June, he, uh, Sanchez filed a pro se motion to evoke my right not to invoke my right not to pursue clemency. Uh, he claims that even though he is demonstrably innocent, the PPB is never going to listen to him, believes the board is incapable and has too many people with a direct interest in keeping things the way they are or the way they've always been. Uh, he says he will not be part of that. I am not the state of Oklahoma's punching bag. I have chosen to pursue my innocence through other fairer means. Uh, read Court of Public Opinion. Uh, Sanchez has realized my attorneys were too damn incompetent to help me prove my innocence. He started to look for other attorneys and the Western District denied his right to have attorneys from his choosing. He is in the middle of constructing a variety of motions, including an actual innocence motion to file on his own. He is not doing the clemency hearing, which will free him up to spend the pre precious time he has working to prove his innocence and not working on clemency. He wants to prove that he did not kill Julie Buskin. He wants to be declared actually innocent. You just don't offer a forum for accomplishing that. I've seen you smash demonstrably, demonstrably innocent cases repeatedly. Uh, again, he attests his waiver is made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily, and that he's consulted his family, spiritual advisor, and an outside attorney about his decision. And he says, I am the person facing an execution date on 9-21-2023, and in all caps, he says, I cannot waste any more time on this broken process. So he's, uh, he actually, files, he's a martyr now, basically. Yeah, that. he's become he's he's painting himself as a martyr, uh, as an actually innocent. And all the anti-death penalty groups will will say he was actually innocent and that mm -hmm. his father was the real killer. 
the same way that if Rodney Reed is eventually executed, um, they will say he was actually innocent and proven actually innocent. And Jimmy Finnell was a real kill. Right. Um, on June, uh, July 17th, 2023, a motion for order to determine file disposition was filed by Barrett. Um, including a copy of a request for for his file by Sanchez. And basically Barrett seeking guidance from the court regarding whether Sanchez is entitled to the entirety of counsel's files. Uh, they cite that the documents in the files would have to be redacted because they contain birth dates and social security numbers. The files contain reports that were not used at trial that contained incriminating and potentially or potentially incriminating information about Sanchez. Um, and that Sanchez claims a constitutional right to the entirety of the files, but cites no authorities. Uh, for the above reasons and upon the above authorities, counsel requests an order that for the present, the documents to be provided to Mr. Sanchez shall consist of the trial transcript, absent the jury selection portion, and moves that Mr. Sanchez be informed that he if he requests additional documents, those requests should be limited to specific documents known to exist. Um, they also filed a motion to withdraw, seeking to withdraw himself and coin. Uh, and this is more likely than not due to the allegations being made by Sanchez. Um, Sanchez filed a notice of pro se notice of appeal on July 17th to appeal the uh, June 6th order to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, that has been lodged as Docket number 23-6095. The record on appeal has been transmitted. Uh, an entry of appearance has been filed on behalf of the AG, and Sanchez was served by U.S. Mail. An order was entered that the case is being considered for summary disposition, and a response is, was due by 728 uh, 2023 by counsel for Anthony Castillo uh, and proceedings in the appeal were suspended and that was served on August 8th on July 18th. I did check the docket to see what was filed or if anything was filed. Um, I'll check on that mm -hmm. another time and, and we'll talk about the case maybe again after September 21st. Okay. Um, uh, Sanchez's execution was scheduled on July July 1st, 2022 uh, as a phase two date. And the original date was April 4th, 2020, April 6th, 2023. Um, that phase two date was confirmed on, on January 9th, 2023. Uh, then the AG filed a motion to reset execution dates on, Ju on January 17th. Uh, with a request to schedule the phase two execution dates. That order was granted on January 24th, 2023, and Sanchez's execution was reset to uh, September 21st, 2023. Um, as I think we touched on a little bit earlier in the beginning of the show, I did look on the court uh, records in Oklahoma, and I have no criminal history other than misdemeanors for public intoxication and DUI for Thomas Glenn Sanchez, whose date of birth is in June, 1953. 
-hmm. I did find multiple criminal felony cases against a Thomas G. Sanchez, whose date of birth is December 1963. But the birth date is off by six months and a decade. Mm -hmm. And this is likely not the same person. Uh, But I believe that Sanchez's advocates that his that that Glenn Sanchez had a violent criminal history is either based on a deliberate deliberately lying about this Thomas Sanchez um because it that's not true um now he may have been violent with with women he and he may have uncharged crimes against women mm-hmm. w- that he was in relationships with that were never reported that he was never arrested or tried for. But, you know, if, if a, uh, if, if you have to have a criminal charge and a criminal conviction in order to have a felony history, then he doesn't have one. Right. Well, looking at these birth dates, if he were, if he were the person born in 1963, he would have been about thirty what, 33, is my math right? Yes. Anthony would have been 43. He would have been 43 at the time of Julie Buskin's murder. Wasn't it 1996? 96. He was born in 19 in June of 1953. The crime was December 1996. And if it were the other Thomas Sanchez who was born in 63, that the age wouldn't be right. I'm not sure what. Well, you see, there's two Thomas Sanchez's. The one we know that is, um, and the father, was, yeah, the father the is the father. So, and, but uh, but this other Thomas Ch- Sanchez really, his birthday doesn't really work. No. Right. No, not not. Um, no, there's no way he could be. He could have been confused with. Um, no. He could not have been confused with this Thomas Glenn Sanchez. This Thomas Glenn Sanchez could not have given those birth dates or anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. No. Um, like I said, I think they're misrepresenting that Thomas Glenn San- or that Thomas G. Sanchez. We don't even know what the G stands for. And I know Thomas Glenn, Anthony's father was born June 5th, 1953, because that's what's in the obituary that I found. Right. Okay. Have so, you seen a copy of um, Anthony's birth certificate? No. I ha- No, I haven't found that. Um, Anthony would have been born in 1978. Mm-hmm. That would have made Glenn... he would have been 20 in 1973. So 25 when, when Anthony was born. Yeah. And I think I was a little bit confusing when I was talking before, but Anthony, that Anthony was born in 1978. So this person born in 1963 would have been too young. If that, that couldn't be the person that is his father, unless he was only 15 when he fathered Anthony. Correct. That, and that, Yes, you are correct. But, you know, the other thing that's interesting is um, Glenn Sanchez would have been 43 Mm -hmm. at the time of Julie Buskin's murder. 
right. making him significantly older than the 25 to 30 estimate. Absolutely. Of the witness. And again, they're, they're basing it on their opinions of a drawing made by a witness two years after the murder that may or may not have been an accurate representation. And, you know, each of these sightings were in the wee hours of the morning when it was probably still dark. Mm -hmm. And they were brief. They were made while vehicles were moving. So any perception of the of the person is probably that's a difficult situation under the best of circumstances. That's true. Um, especially if you're driving when the, when the sighting occurs. Now, if you are stopped and you see the car drive by, you might have a little bit more time for your perception. But if you're, if you're in a vehicle heading in the opposite direction, you know, you're, you've got a very brief moment of perception. Right. So, but that is pretty much, that's the case. Well, I think you've done a great job in presenting the case. I think that there can be no doubt that Anthony is guilty. Uh, and it, it just strikes me how, how these people just will let it go on and on, uh, taking up taxpayer money. And now he's refusing to, let his attorneys try for clemency. I don't think he get it, but um, yeah, he's he waived his clemency hearing, so there's not going to be a clemency hearing. Right. Yeah. So I I think we'll we'll, we'll wave goodbye to him on September what twenty first. Twenty first. Yes that <laughs> that is the that is the day of reckoning for Anthony mm -hmm. Castillo Sanchez. Well. Um, but I think it's also important for people to realize that what is being talked about in the court of public opinion now is not new. None it's, of it's not good. stuff well, the courts have not heard and rejected. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's also, it involves a lot of very unfair criticism of his attorneys. Because they're being accused of not caring. They're being accused of um, not doing a good job, of wanting him dead. And those things are just, they're just frankly, that's not it. They're, they're, they have the insurmountable obstacle of conclusive DNA evidence on but two you know, that, that's items. That's the typical playbook. I mean, that's how, that's what they all do. I mean, with Adnan's case, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, Christina was just awful, and then his attorneys after that were just awful, and now uh, Justin Brown was just awful. So that's just their playbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we are actually coming up close on the end of our three-and-a-half-hour time that I set for the Zoom conference. <laughs> okay. So I think we better wrap it up before Zoom does it for us. Uh, well, thank really you so much for joining me, Rob. I really appreciate you stepping in for Kyle. Well, it was a, it was a joy, and uh, I appreciate you. I listen to everything you do, and this is this will be as great as all the others. Thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to doing this again. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> thank care. you for listening. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, the true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Rob Chadwick, guest for Kyle today. If you like the show and want to know more, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Kyle and I will return in three weeks for episode 10, Notable Supreme Court Cases. As I've been threatening to do, we're going to look at cases cited in post-conviction litigation, including Miranda, Furman, Gregg, Atkins, Roper, Ford, Witherspoon, Brady, Napu, Giglio, uh, Giglio, Strickland, you, Martinez, uh, Trevino, Schlepp, and Herrera. We'll look <laughs> briefly at the background of each case, the issues raised by the petitioners, and the decisions of the Supreme Court. Until then, have a great three weeks and stay safe. Goodbye.